Who and when will be the next great Japanese import into Major League Baseball? I'll ask Tim McLeod about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 28th. It's show number 14 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com and the Prospect 361 podcast. And, of course, he's our go-to guy for Japanese and Korean baseball. In part one, we'll discuss some of his big surprises and disappointments of the year so far, about waiver wire targeting, and about the closer go-round. And in part two, Tim and I will talk about baseball in the Far East, including this year's arrivals in Major League Baseball and some possibilities for 2024 and beyond. We'll have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy, Code General Manager, Projections Expert, Writer, and Analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitters including Brent Rooker and American League pitchers including Tanner Bybee and Alec Manoa, as well as National League hitters including Jordan Walker and National League pitchers including Tony Gonsolin. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at Arizona right-handed starter Brandon Fott. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cleveland right-handed starter Gavin Williams. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the Mateo Miracle. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com and the Prospect 361 podcast. Tim, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Well, yeah, we're doing a we're doing an all-star Canadian show today. I, I I always enjoy these segments, Patrick, and I thank you so much for inviting me. We always have fun. It is always fun. It's fun to see you in person as we do every year at First Pitch Arizona. Uh, yeah. I hope that'll happen again as well. Uh, let's start by talking about your drafts, Tim. How many drafts are you playing in this year, and how are your teams doing? Well, I got a total of 12, but I'm not counting three because they're gladiator draft and hold type. So I've, I've got nine leagues, including Tote, Labor, and the XFL. So I've got a fairly fairly solid schedule, but it's it's doable. I've only got one daily moves league. And that's that's the key. Weekly moves is one thing. When you get into daily moves, that that becomes a challenge. And as far as how is how I'm doing, I am leading the world in injured players right now. It's it's been a horrible start as far as health is concerned. Uh, big investment in Logan O'Hoppy, uh, Reese Hoskins, Edwin Diaz, Tristan McKenzie, and Luis Severino. And you know what? I, I'm sitting pretty well mid-pack, upper mid-pack in a couple. So all things considered, uh, 
I'm pretty happy with the way I've I've started, considering the adversity I'm I'm currently looking at. I had Edwin Diaz, Reese Hoskins, and Tristan McKenzie all in one league. Top seven picks in my draft. Uh, out of them, three of them got uh, hurt before the year even started. Although I understand Tristan McKenzie's throwing and he's expected back by the end of May. So I guess take your good news where you can get it. Well, that's pretty much what I'm doing. In in Tote Wars, where I'm sitting mid-pack, I've got Orlando Arcia, Dylan Moore, Travis Darnold, Logan O'Hoppy, Luis Severino, Ranger Suarez, Liam Hendricks, Tristan McKenzie, all on the IL. So <laughs> yeah, that's it's, bad. it's tough going. Although Hendricks uh, might come back sooner than everybody thought, too. That's a pretty bold risk that you took at the time. Do you remember how much uh, you spent on Liam Hendricks on the come? Yeah, it was, uh, I believe, towards the end. I did the same thing in labor. Uh, I, I played a hunch that he'd be back, and I've got him sitting on my L in both IL in both tote and labor. It was towards the uh, the back of the teen rounds. It wasn't an early pick, no. Well, we're about 15% of the way through 2023. Uh, what do you think is the biggest story in fantasy baseball so far? The biggest story is a continuation, I think, of the story that we saw last year with the new CBA in that teams aren't afraid to bring up their younger players. They're being very, very aggressive when it comes to promotions. Uh, You know, we saw the Guardians bring up two starting pitchers in the past week. And I, I think that trend is going to continue. And being aggressive on the on the waiver wire right now i think is something a lot of us should be looking at because i think there's opportunities out there hey you're not going to hit gold all the time but the biggest thing for me is the fact that the game has changed in the past past year and i think we have to adopt our fantasy baseball to the real game and not be afraid to move on some of these young, young players as they get called up. When you talk about your teams, you had a lot of injuries on the pitching side, especially, but which batter on one or more of your rosters has been your biggest pleasant surprise? Well, I had high hopes for Mr. Oatman with the Dodgers and I, I have him rostered, uh, James Oatman in Tote, Labor, and the XFL. I I just thought there was an opportunity based on what he did last year. And looking at the Dodgers outfield, the possibility of securing a full-time role was there. And I was hoping for good things, but I sure wasn't betting on seven home runs, two stolen bases, and a 383 OBP. So right now, James Outman is uh, is both my surprise and probably one of my best players. Great start. How about on the pitching side? You suffered through a lot of injuries there, but uh, you must have some pitchers that you're happy with. Most of the pitchers that I'm happy with at this point in time are some of the younger guys. I I like what I'm seeing from Taj Bradley in Tampa Bay, and I think he'll be back up with Tampa Bay fairly shortly. Uh, Tanner Bybee in Cleveland looked extremely good in his start last night. For the most part, uh, it's some of the younger pitchers that are that are carrying me, per se. I picked up Tanner Bybee in tout a couple of weeks ago on the expectation that he'd get called up, and he did, but I had him on my reserve for that great first start, and 
Tell me this, are you, are you at all concerned that uh, in Cleveland they've already got a pretty solid rotation and they've got McKenzie coming back at the end of May, as I said earlier? They've got some options there. Are you worried that Tanner Bybee's an up-and-down kind of guy or a mostly down and occasionally up kind of guy? No, I, I think there's room in Cleveland for him, and I think there's room in Cleveland for Allen as well. Uh, Zach Plesek, uh and Cal Quantrill could – there could, there could be problems there. As long as both those young pitchers continue to pitch well, I think when it's time for Tristan McKenzie to return, uh, I don't think they should have any concerns. Uh, again, as long as they're pitching well, uh, I, I really strongly believe that Zach Plisak's days are numbered. And, you know, I, I can see a rotation with Logan Allen, Tanner Bybee, and Tristan McKenzie with Bieber and... Yeah, you know, maybe Savali. I having having depth in the pitching is always a good thing. And when you're with an organization that develops pitching, like I said, I I, I think they're both going to stick around, Patrick. How about a hitter on any of your teams or many of your teams who's been a real disappointment for you so far, barring injury, a guy who's playing but not playing well? Uh, I I went late at third base in a couple of leagues and uh anthony rendon is really trying my patience right now i was going to ask you why but of course it's fairly obvious uh, how about a pitcher that you've got rostered uh, here and there who may not be here very long very much longer for you i figured michael kopech in chicago would be an okay number five six type starter but we really haven't seen anything from Kopech so far. And when push comes to shove and some of my guys start returning from the IL, nice knowing you, Michael, uh, unless we see some significant improvement. And, and the White Sox are just a, a mess. I watched the game last night, and the Jays shut them out. I think it was 8 nothing. 8 nothing. yep. Yeah. You know, it, they should be very thankful that there's a team in Oakland right now. <laughs> yeah, so that they can't be the worst team in the league. Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen any trends or situations in the way that fantasy baseball is being played this year that you think uh, canny fantasy managers can take advantage of? Well, I think one of the one of the things as as fantasy managers we always have to be very cognizant of is is living in living in the real world. Uh, say you know i was taking a look at whip for instance and looking at several of my leagues and going back even a year two years ago uh, a 120 whip okay would put you in the towards the middle middle bottom in that category well today a 120 whip puts you top three top four so the game around us is changing and I think we always have to be very much aware of those changes. And when it comes time to setting goals, set them as to what they are, where it's currently at, not where it was at. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing a lot of power early on. You know, is Rob Manford tinkering with the ball again? Are we going to see an adjustment there? Things that we don't know, but, all I all I can say is the game is getting younger, and you know, take advantage of that uh, of that situation. 
In the first couple of weeks, it looks like we were going to double the amount of stolen base attempts and the success rate was way up. I think the success rate is still pretty high, 78, 79%. It was over 80 in the first couple of weeks. And I'm wondering what, when you look ahead, are you forecasting the stolen bases to stay on a pretty aggressive pace or are they going to slow down as it appears they're starting to? I think they'll slow down a bit, but but teams that teams that run and players that run aren't going to stop. And you take a look at what Ron Lacuna has done and Jorge Mateo. Okay, they're sort of making a mockery of the whole situation. Corbin Carroll, they can the, when they decide they're going to run, as long as they're not caught with too much of a lead, and the pitcher catches them, they're going to they're going to get into second pretty well. At will. So why would they stop running? I don't see any changes there. I, I think where the where it will get interesting for me is looking at the guys that we projected five to ten. How many of those five to ten stolen base guys become ten to fifteen? That's where I think it gets interesting as the season progresses. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Tim McLeod from Prospects361.com. And Tim, uh, you're one of the main fantasy baseball raiders at the Prospects361.com site, and you have a waiver wire feature that runs on Sunday of every week. How did you get started doing that, and uh, what's your what are your deadlines? What's your process? Well, I started doing a waiver wire probably ten years ago when I was uh, when I was working at RotoRob.com for Rob Blackstein, and I. Basically, uh, I moved to Prospect 361, where I've been doing a podcast with Rich Wilson, oh, for the past 13 years, I believe. Uh, A few years ago, just uh, looking for more uh, in-season content, I suggested uh, something that I'd been doing for a long time, the waiver wire, and uh, it's been received fairly well. I, I like posting on a Sunday because Sunday is the principal fab day. And as a result, it's uh, it tends to be as current as possible, Patrick. And have you started working on this week's? Because I'm curious who you like for this week's waiver wire. Bailey Ober. I think he's going to be taking uh, a cab back uh, uh, from St. Paul to uh, Minneapolis. Kenta Maeda didn't look very good last night. Ober looked good in his last start, and he's pitching well down on the farm. So... If you're looking for if you're looking for pitching, I think Bailey. I wouldn't be at all shocked to see Kenta Maeda on the IL and Bailey Bailey Ober getting the call. So he's definitely one player I'm looking at. Uh, there's a kid in Baltimore that uh, is moving up the ranks very very quickly as a setup guy. Oh, I just can't remember his name off the top of my head now. Oh, it's Baltimore, uh, Yanni or uh, Cano. That's it? it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, again, I, I think one of the things that, that I do with my my waiver wire is uh, I, I tend to try and identify uh, relief pitchers that are capable of either getting into a safe situation because they're a setup guy, they're pitching well, and occasionally I, I simply look at relief pitchers that are pitching in, incredibly well with high K rates. I've been a big fan of rostering uh, Scott Shields sold me years ago, and I have no problems at all, and I think it's a very smart move, rostering middle reliever 
you know, seventh inning guys with great strikeout rates. Uh, where are you better off with a seventh inning high K K nine guy or a number six starting pitcher that produces a six ERA? To me, it seems like a, a no brainer. Well, of course, Ron Chandler adopted yeah. that approach in the Lima plan many years ago, and then he started telling everybody what he was doing. So he kind of lost the advantage, but high skill relievers are usually pretty cheap. And uh, especially these days when teams have so many relief pitchers on their mm-hmm. rosters, they're usually pretty plentiful in the, yeah. in the waiver wire pool, in the free agent pool. The, the downside of that is a lot of the pitchers who are in the free agent pool are there for a reason. They're actually not that good. And they're yep. just in there to, you know, come in in the fifth inning in a, in a blowout and just so, soak up some innings, but they don't really deliver. So when you catch a guy who's got a really good skill set, and they're always there, they're still mm-hmm. always there. I know that uh, guys are getting yeah. smarter in playing fantasy baseball. And when you go into your uh, free agent pool, you're usually looking for strikeout minus walk excellence. You want ground ball excellence where you can find it and those kind of things, uh, home run mm-hmm. prevention. But it's getting harder to find even those guys because people are so aware of it. Exactly. Uh, at one point in time when one had an edge, that's disappeared. And it'll continue to disappear. It just means we have to work harder and possibly buy earlier. And that's the name of the game. It's always changing. Yeah, the information advantage has really declined, especially in the age of the internet. You and I are both old enough to remember when Pretty much oh, everybody yeah. got their their information from Street and Smiths or the Mazarowski magazine off the off the newsstand, and it was four months old by the time you picked it up at draft time because they had to finish it in November to get it out in time for uh, for drafts. And uh, nowadays, of course, all that information is right at your fingertips. And not only the information we used to get from Street and Smiths, which was basically here's the guy's last four seasons for home runs, RBI, stolen bases, and batting average. Now we're getting his swing plane information. <laughs> we're getting, you know, batted ball speed information, the fastball break, uh, you know, the all of these kind of things that are simultaneously, I wonder, Tim, what you think, but it seems simultaneously we're getting so much information that we should be able to do a better job figuring out what players we want. But at the same time, there's so much information that it starts to become kind of difficult to sort out which information you want to use and how in, how significant it is. And how are you keeping up with that? I try and keep it as simple as possible. Uh, I've always been a, a big a big walk guy. Okay, if if a if a hitter can find his way to first base, that's a good thing. If a pitcher doesn't allow a lot of walks, that's also a good thing. Combined, of course, with a lot of other metrics, but. Uh, I think it's fine to look as deep as possible and search out as much information, but I try and keep it as simple as possible. And at the end of the day, the key is playing time opportunities. And if you can find those opportunities, hey, that gives you a chance for skilled players to come through. Now, it doesn't guarantee anything, but like I said, I I love all of the advanced metrics that are there. I, for me, a lot of what I do, I, I try and keep it as simple as possible. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. It, it, yeah. It's, uh, difficult sometimes to make sense of, of all the, uh, advanced metrics, not to make sense of them because I, in my case, I know I understand what they're doing and what, and what they're talking about. It's just right. a question of integrating it into your actual decision-making process because, especially when, when the metrics are fairly new to you or fairly new to the game, 
you really don't know, like, how stable is this? When does it stabilize? How reliable is it from one season to the next, one start to the next? All of these kind of considerations. And it, it, yeah. it definitely keeps your mind active. So, and that's one good thing about people when they get to be my age is, you know, I play <laughs> the game partly so I can have something to think about in, uh, in detail because I don't work anymore. Uh, right. I'm, I'm going to talk uh, to you here, Tim, about a couple of guys you mentioned in last week's waiver wire column. I had Taylor Walls on my tout team in his rookie season, and I got to say he didn't do much and he wasn't very impressive, but you flagged him for this year last weekend, uh, and I know Taylor Walls is still out there in a lot of free agent pools. What are you seeing with the 2023 version of Taylor Walls that should make us interested? I think the big thing is, you know, he's getting on base and he's scoring runs. You know, as of last weekend, he was he was posting an 1107 OPS. Okay, the rosterable numbers at CBS, 31%, ESPN, 23. Uh, right now, he's eligible at second, short, and third. And I think Tampa Bay plans on using him on a regular basis as a full-time player. And if that does change at some point in time, he covers off three positions. So in shallower leagues, that allows you a little bit of flexibility when it comes to your bench spots. But right now he's just playing very well and he's, he's earning the playing time that he's getting. And as a result, uh, I think a lot of people are thinking of the Taylor Walls we saw last year. And the one we're seeing thus far this year is a different player. You also touted Arizona starting pitcher Brandon Fatt as a likely call-up, but Tommy Henry got the call instead, but you're still positive on Brandon Fatt. What are you thinking there? Well, I think uh, I think what's happened is the Diamondbacks have a few off days, so they're going to give them a couple starts. Once uh, they get through the next two two week period, I think we're going to see we're going to see him getting the call. And he'll be a regular part of that rotation, assuming he, you know, he can handle it and gets the job done. He'll be a regular part of that rotation right through the end of the season. So I haven't, uh, I haven't dropped my my estimations or you know as as far as the caliber of pitcher he is. I, it's just a, a soft spot in the schedule. And hey, as soon as that, uh, as soon as that uh, changes, we're going to see the kid. Yeah, I think it's three off days in the next two weeks, so they can they can mm-hmm. stay on a uh, on a regular schedule with four starters. But then uh, I heard that the manager Tori Lavallo said he's not going to go with four starters; that he wants to go with five, even through the off days. Maybe give each guy a little extra day of rest here and there. And the other thing I noticed was that uh, the Diamondbacks have a the way that things roll out, if they want to give Brandon Fat his first start at home, which you'd think they would, sell a few tickets, come see the new kid, that kind of thing, the way that things roll out, his first his first week could be a, a two-step, I think Washington and Miami, which would be about as good a, a two-game start as you could possibly have for fantasy purposes. I think Brandon Fat, if you can get him now before he gets called up, then uh, you should, and if you have to wait till after he gets called up, don't be afraid to put in a pretty substantial bid. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You can't want it's hard to want two better matchups than that. Maybe throw Oakland in there for good measure, but yeah, he's getting two good starts. The thing about that is, right now, uh, as of last Sunday, before the waiver wire run, he was rostered to the tune of forty nine percent at CBS. 
my guess, and it's just a guess, he's probably over the 60-70% mark. If you don't have him rostered uh, by now, odds are pretty good that somebody else has. But hey, take a, take a look at your free agent pool. And if he's sitting there, I would highly recommend getting this kid on your team. And of course, a lot of leagues, you can't sign a guy unless he's been on the major league roster. And so far, Brandon Fott has not been, or if he was, it would have been right at the start of the year before he got sent down. I'm sure he's on the 40 man, but I don't think he's been on a 26 man roster. So as you said, the only way to be sure is to go and look at your team at, at your leagues, rather free agent pool and make sure because guys with zero innings pitched in the major leagues tend to fall to the bottom of those lists because the lists are usually organized by who's, who's got some playing time in and, it's, uh, it, it, it'll pay you to look uh, all the way down the list to the bottom or sort the list alphabetically and go and see if Brandon Fott's on it. Uh, I, I grabbed Braxton Miller where I could during draft season this year, and so far he's been a mix of sort of good and not so good. 284 ERA, I'll take that. 142 whip, not so good, you know, I'm worried, and I'm worried about that. 14 uh, walks per nine is uh, not so good. That's not right. 1.4 walks per nine is good. 7.6 strikeouts per nine, not so good. Uh, where are you on Braxton Garrett these days? Well, I, I think we've lost so many pitchers to injury this year, and a lot of pitchers haven't even gotten out of the gate. Uh, I'm looking at Miami, and, you know, Trevor Rogers, you know, with the left bicep strain, he's going to miss a fair bit of time. I, I'm a little concerned with Sandy uh Alcantara and his start especially you know hey there was some bicep uh bicep tightness last weekend that pushed him back so I I think as a number five six starter I think there's a there's a decent player sitting there he's not going to be a star but at the same point in time we need five, six starters in our game, especially with the, you know, the current spate of injuries uh, that are occurring. So um, if you're treating him as a five, six, I like it. If you expect him to be a two, three, well, I think you're setting your expectations a bit high. Especially now, you also wrote up uh, Pittsburgh starter, Ronzi Contreras, and he had a bit of uh, preseason fantasy sleeper buzz, as we both know. And he started the year pretty good in Boston. Then he really laid an egg in his home opener against Houston. Uh, seven earned runs in three and a third, three strikeouts, four walks. It looked terrible. But then in the next 16 or so innings, three earned runs on 12 and two thirds innings. That's a 213 ERA, 16 base runners is a 126 whip. And as you said, 126 didn't used to be that good, but now 126 is not a is not a failing point. Where are you now on Ronzi Contreras? Ah, incredibly bullish. Uh, I like the skills. And other than laying an egg in that second start, which I, I think caused people to to shy away, uh, shy away from him, he's, after yesterday's start, uh, and it was an impressive one, he, he held, uh, he held the, uh, the Dodgers, what, to two hits? Over six innings, five strikeouts, no runs. He's got his ERA down to 358, and I like Contreras a lot. I certainly wouldn't be sleeping on him. Again, the one bad start, but four out of, I'll look at the four out of five other efforts where the most he's allowed is is two runs and, and be very happy. And I, I, 
I think uh, I think he's got a very very good future moving forward. And another thing about free agent pools is sometimes uh, the inclination is to sort by ERA and, Correct. you know, and uh, it, it makes some good pitchers look not so good because of that one terrible start. And it behooves you to look at the skills rather than, uh, rather than the outcome sometimes. And uh, this is a case where I think that's probably true. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt. With Tim McLeod from Prospects361.com. And Tim, you also prepare and update the closer report at the Prospects361.com website. Uh, how long have you been covering bullpens in addition to all your other work? Well, I, I've been c- covering bullpens for about 30 years, give or take. <laughs> and uh, as a player of the game. And and what happened was a couple of years or so ago, uh, I just thought to myself, Hey, I'm doing all this work. I've got all the charts. I've got all the players listed. Why not? Why not just find find a a grid that can be used? And Rich Wilson put together a grid for me. And basically, all I've all I've done is taken my own personal lists that I've been compiling it to keep track of bullpens for years and years and years, and just put them into a format and. Uh, I I update it two three times a week and away we go. So it's all it is basically is just an extension of something I've been doing for years. You said in your update that the guy we should be after for the Cubs is Jeremiah Estrada, who just got called up. I remember his name from preseason, and it didn't pan out at that time. But why not one of the established guys in Chicago? Well, when I look at the established guys in Chicago. Yeah, hey, I had high hopes for Michael Fulmer, and it turns out that I was just high. <laughs> yeah, not much hope. Uh, <laughs> you look at that. You look at the the bullpen in 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 Chicago, and you got Fulmer, who's never held down the rule. Okay, you know he's had he's had spurts where he's looked very good. You got Brad Boxberger. Same thing. Brad Boxberger has never been a full-time closer, I don't believe. If it was, it was for a very short stint. Then you've got, you know, Al Zale, a failed starting pitcher pro- project, Brandon Hughes. I look at that bullpen, and I don't see anybody that has the dominant closer potential that I currently see from Jeremiah Estrada. Now, hey, it, it might be it might be next year, but a lot of the leagues I play in utilize holes, especially holes at 0.5. So I think Estrada is going to move up the ranks very quickly, and I wouldn't be at all shocked if he works his way into, into saves this year. So, again, I, I just think he's the type of pitcher that can, can pass by these veterans that – have never proven to be able to to hold the ninth inning job long term. Brad Boxberger actually led the league in saves in 2015 for Tampa, and he had 30-some in a few years later for Arizona. But he's 35 or 36 years old now, and you know, uh, in a lot of ways, closers is the last stop for a, for a guy in his declining years. But in a lot of ways, it's a really a young young man's game now because they want those guys who can deliver the strikeouts and and get 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 you through quickly. Yeah, you know after after leading after leading in Tampa Bay with the forty one, he went two years and didn't record a save, and he was he was hurt most of those seasons, and then you know, came back with Arizona. But he's got a total of what seven seven saves over the past 
four seasons. Yeah, the bloom was definitely off the rose. And it's interesting how many big league managers, especially the ex-players I find, are so in love with guys who have that closer tag. Like they have the label closer hanging around their neck and they'll look right past the Jeremiah Stratas and guys with real genuine skills and they'll say, yeah, but he doesn't have, you know, the guile. He doesn't have the the makeup. He doesn't have the experience of being a closer. And you think, yeah, okay, all of those things probably count for something, but gosh, you know, a 99 mile an hour fastball counts for something too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually success. <laughs> Yeah, if, if he can spot it, of course, there's lots of yeah. variables in there. But uh, I think as fantasy managers, you have to look at the organization for its mm-hmm. sort of uh, how does the manager and how does the general manager like to approach the closer situation? Do they want to go with an established mm-hmm. veteran? Are they looking around for that or are they willing to take a chance on, on just pure skills? And Tampa would be the latter, of course. Uh, they'll try anybody there and usually do. <laughs> 14 or 15 guys in a year sometimes. Uh, Dwayne yeah. Underwood, Tim, is not the closer in Pittsburgh. That, of course, is David Bednar, who's actually yes. leading the majors with eight saves so far, has an 082 ERA and an 082 whip the last time I checked. Yet you recommended that we look at Dwayne Underwood for our rosters. How come? Well... As good as Pittsburgh is playing, uh, David Bednar occasionally needs a day off. And Underwood, if I'm not mistaken, already has two saves under his belt uh, in the setup role. So, you know, hey, Bednar can't pitch every day. And Underwood, you know, hey, two saves already, pitching very well. Uh, There's also the possibility that David Bednar ends up being traded at the trade deadline for those looking even longer term is as good of a start as Pittsburgh has had. Are they going to sustain that? Will they move David Bednar, a veteran who's starting to cost some money? I, I don't know what's going to happen over the next three, four months, but a player like Dwayne Underwood, who's already got two saves under his belt, he's, he's going to get the opportunities when David Bednar de- needs a day off. And being in the setup role, I, I don't think we can totally rule out the fact that he finds more saves in the second half of the season. And the, if the price is right, it's certainly a gamble worth taking because in the meantime, oh, sure. most of his metrics are, are pretty solid. He's a little bit low on the strikeouts, Tim, 17.5% roughly and a 4% walk rate. So he's 13% strikeout minus walk. And usually when we're looking at closers, we're more interested in the kind of 25, 26% range in that, or at least 20. And so I wonder if you're at all concerned about the fact that uh, Underwood does, doesn't seem to strike out as many guys as we might like. Well, when I look back historically to his numbers, he's basically a strikeout burning guy. And that works for me. This year in 11 and a third, he's got eight strikeouts. All he needs to do in his next appearance is strike out two guys and he's back to his strikeout per inning. So I, I think that's what he is. And I think he's proven that over a number of years. So now I'm, hey, you're you're not going to get a role as Chapman, but you're going to get a guy, I think, who's going to, who's, who's going to work somewhere in the, you know, strikeout per inning range, which I think is fine. Clay Holmes of the Yankees uh, racked up four saves pretty quickly in the season. To my delight, uh, then he blew a save and took a loss when they brought him into the eighth in a game against Minnesota. Then I saw the Yankees use Clay Holmes against Toronto, against four right-handers in the seventh, 
and right. into the eighth, and then they lifted him for a left-handed hitter. It doesn't look like the Yankees are 100% sold on Clay Holmes as their closer. What do you think Clay Holmes' status is as the Yankees' closer, and what should we be thinking about him as fantasy managers counting on him for saves? Uh, I think that was just a situation where the Yankees wanted their, their best arm in against the heart of the order. I think Clay Holmes is, is the closer. But at the same point in time, their manager is not, hey, if you get into the the eighth inning in a tight game, yeah, you know, and you're and you're facing the heart of the opponent's order, yeah, he'll use Clay Holmes. the The problem in New York is Michael King seems to be more of a swing guy rather than an eighth inning guy, and you got you got Wandy Peralta as your you know one basically your sole left handed reliever in there, and Ron Marinaccio, who who I like. And at some point in time, I can see him uh, working his way into into some saves, something he hasn't uh, accomplished yet. But if he, he certainly has the ability to generate huge strikeout numbers, uh, Patrick. And you touched on this uh, a little while ago, Tim. Uh, your bullpen grid currently shows Baltimore's late-inning pitchers as Felix Bautista in the closer role, Brian Baker and Sionel Perez as the setup guys. But now into the mix comes this guy, Yenier Cano, and you mentioned him. He has seven innings this season, no earned runs allowed, no base runners allowed. He picked up a save on Monday of this week and about three zillion Twitter posts with the video clips of his just wacky uh, pitch movement. How can we be thinking of Yenier Cano in the, in the context of that Baltimore bullpen? Well, I, I need another line on my grid is what it boils down to. And somehow I'm going to find a way to work him in because the kid's pitching lights out. Uh, is he going to take the job away from Felix Batista? No, not a chance. But that doesn't mean, as we've already seen, he's not going to work himself into into saves over the balance of the year. So, you know, I hate in, in deeper leagues, uh, AL only, uh, leagues that count holds. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Cano has to be, has to be on the radar. I'm going to probably move him ahead of Sionel Perez right now and find, find a way to identify him, uh, this week, Patrick. All right, Tim, very interesting so far. Uh, let's take a quick break. I'll go do some news, and then we'll come back and finish our discussion talking about baseball in the Far East, your specialty. Yeah, looking forward to it. I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time over the years scouting the uh, Japanese-Korean markets, and uh, we'll, we'll dig up some interesting names for the listeners, Patrick. Tim McLeod writes for Prospect361.com and appears regularly at the Prospect 361 podcast. And of course, he's our go-to guy for Japanese and Korean baseball, and we'll be back a little later to talk about baseball in the Far East, including this year's arrivals and possibilities for 2024 and beyond. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Zach Larson discusses in-season roster management in a column titled Setting the Course, Roster Assessment. Rotisserie Gaming articles are just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. 
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update, and here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back from holidays, and welcome to the show. Glad to be back in the hot seat here, Patrick. Let's see what you got for me. Well, quite a lot of news. Uh, I was saying just before we started, uh, there's been a ton of great articles at BaseballHQ.com this week, actually for the last couple of weeks, just really a blanket coverage of uh, everything that's going on in fantasy baseball. And one of them was Jock Thompson, of course, who used to have the job you're doing today here on Baseball HQ Radio. He works at BaseballHQ.com as a news director, or did, and he's still writing um, Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of all five teams in the American League West. And that's a weekly look at roster changes that might be coming in the Playing Time Tomorrow feature, all six divisions. One of the hitters he mentioned this week in his American League West coverage, of all places, in Oakland. And my first thought was, can this be true? Someone in Oakland is actually worth rostering? Yeah, and you know, that team obviously is bad, but... It's atrocious on the pitching side, but like merely below average offensively, you know, nothing offensive we say about it. Uh, <laughs> just a garden variety, but just a garden variety poor offense, which means there are some pockets of value in there. And uh, Jock did a good job of going through them. You know, he called out, you know, the guy at the top of everyone's list this week, I think, is uh, Brent Rooker, uh, who had a two home one night against Jock's Angels on uh, on Monday, I guess it was. Um, we weren't sure in the preseason that he was going to get this kind of playing time, but you know, when you hit seven home runs in the early going, uh, it tends to get you into the lineup more regularly. He's hitting 333 with a 444 on base, a 725 slug, six home runs, and a, most impressively, a flat 11 walk to 12 strikeout ratio as of uh, Wednesday night. So he's controlling the strike zone. He's hitting for power. It's sort of the classic A's profile back when the A's were good. Definitely not a classic Rooker profile, though. Uh, you expressed some surprise in your voice when you noted that he's pretty much 50-50 on the home runs, I mean, on the walks and the strikeouts, because his career record is like 36% strikeouts and 7% walks. So I guess the question, Ray, is can somebody who makes this big of a change in his approach and in his profile maintain it over 162 games and not just over the first 20 or whatever it's been? That is the key question, and of course, by you know the the best thing that Rooker's doing by staking this claim to playing time so early in the season is he is of course, given the lack of competition in Oakland, earned a long look to see if he can keep this going, right? Uh, but certainly in his track record, there's not a heck of a lot of reason to uh, to be optimistic about that. Uh, you might remember him; uh, he's played in the Padres and Royals. Uh, in part-time roles last year. I remember him mostly from the twins back in uh, 2021 when he got his most extended look in the majors. Um, he does have 102 minor league home runs over, I mean, 1700 plate appearances. That's uh, approaching journeyman status. Uh, so there's, there's some plus power there, but like you say, the, the plate skills have never been anything like this. Um, you know, in minor league career or in his major league career, those, you know, total of 270 plate appearances across those three or four teams, We've seen a 64% contact rate, 7% walk rate. That's more like, uh, you know, four or five to one strikeout to walk ratio, not one to one. Uh, so, uh, but, but if we look at why he's getting this opportunity in Oakland, 
besides taking advantage of it, uh, you know, the, the A's have seen a good good amount of attrition, especially, you know, in the outfield first base DH rotation they have there. You know, Seth Brown is out. You know, he's in the middle of a four to six week stint for an oblique strain. Ramon Laureano strain is groin, which seems to be a recurring problem. He's out as well. He might be back before Brown. Uh, but if Rooker keeps hitting like this, the guys aren't forcing him out of the lineup. Uh, maybe the guy who needs to be looking over his shoulder is uh, Ryan Noda, who was their uh, their rule five pick uh, in and in uh, first base DH mix. He's been showing a little bit of power, but uh, you know, only hitting two twenty two with uh, a couple of home runs so far. Uh, he's been walking, but he's also been striking out nearly half the time, which is uh, obviously quite concerning. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag, and of course, Jock also points out that you have guys like Loriano, you mentioned Seth Brown, you mentioned, and the the A's have a vested interest in playing those guys because they probably want to trade them uh, sometime during this season before they vanish as free agents. And you know, the the A's have been pretty adroit over the years at at moving guys on and off the roster and trading guys at the peak value. The problem is with injuries, Seth Brown, Ramon Loriano maybe their peak value is uh, in the rearview mirror and that'll be problematic. But in any event, it looks like Rooker, uh, Jock points out not only the improvement in uh, contact rate, but also he seems to be more selective about which pitches he's swinging at and he's had a pretty big launch angle improvement. So he's getting to his power in a legitimate way. It's not a fluky way. And I think it augurs well for uh, Rooker as we look ahead for the rest of the season. Uh, Jock also looked at the lineup of his home team, the Angels, and he says Jared Walsh might be the cure to fantasy manager's lineup headaches. Yeah, Walsh, I mean, he might also be a cure for the Angels too. He was sort of a underrated but important part of, you know, lengthening that lineup. We've talked before about all the offseason acquisitions that <clears throat> the Angels made to try to, you know, reinforce with some, you know, not even plus players, but with, you know, competent league average kind of guys around Trout and Otani, uh, you know, Gio Urshela is on this team and he's picking up a lot of playing time right now, mostly because Walsh isn't there. Walsh is important to this lineup because he's left-handed. Um, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of those reinforcements that I'm talking about are that they brought in have been, you know, Drury, Urshela, et cetera, are right-handers who I, in an ideal world would not be playing as much right on right as they have been so far the guy who's kind of filling in for walsh uh and whose clock is probably ticking as far as having playing time or even sticking on the roster is jake lamb uh he's a left-hander uh but he's only uh he hasn't done much in the fill-in role uh eight for 38 no home runs a 505 ops so he it's pretty clear who gets cleared out when walsh walsh comes back uh and when we do, when Walsh does show up, you know, we were pretty optimistic about um, his skills if he's healthy. Uh, let's not forget back in 2021, he hung up a 850 OPS with 29 home runs and a full season's worth of work. Uh, last year, he crashed back to earth, uh, 642 OPS, only 15 homers. Uh, but that was a injury riddled season where maybe he wasn't healthy all year long before eventually undergoing uh, thoracic outlet surgery. So it'll be curious to see which version of Walsh we get when he uh, gets activated, which sounds like it's going to be fairly soon. 
Ryan Bloomfield of Baseball HQ has another one of your old jobs. He's writing the speculator column about long-shot opportunities, and this week he looked at players who have the skills but are looking for roles, and one player that made his list is Texas shortstop Ezekiel Duran. Yeah, Duran is you know sort of one of the beneficiaries, shall we say, of the um, Corey Seager injury. Uh, well, you might remember last year we saw a little flash of a uh, power and speed profile from Duran. He had five home runs and four stolen bases in a in a cup of coffee, and that actually was a carryover of skills we've seen from him in the minors before. In 2021, he had 19 homers and 19 stolen bases in the minors. The last year before the call up, 16 and 14. So there there is a you know, sort of established power speed profile there. Uh, we capture that with our Mayberry method scores and uh, Duran hangs up a three, 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 one in our Mayberry model, which kind of shows, you know, that's the beauty of Mayberry is it's a quick synopsis and three, 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 one is kind of a, does a little bit of everything kind of thing. So that, uh, that, that's a good, that's a good, uh, you know, shorthand there. Um, and he's playing a lot and off to a decent start, uh, you know, kind of jumping around the infield at shortstop for Seager, but also third base and outfield. So, you know, he's probably going to stick on this roster, you know, broad skill set, multiple paths to playing time. It's a good, you know, sneaky uh, guy with sneaky paths to value. And in our batter buyer's guide, column to Steven Nickrand looked at a, another player who he considers a sell low candidate. He was looking at batters who are off to slow starts. And oftentimes uh, we look at them as buying opportunities because the guy's a good player. He's just off to a slow start. Maybe you grab him. But what Steven did is uh, I think a little more interesting. He's looking at these slow start guys and thinking and telling us these are guys you should really be considering getting rid of. And maybe you can pawn them off on somebody else in your league who believes in the uh, inevitability of rebounds. But uh, Cesar Tovar of Colorado is one of the top shortstop prospects in the game but not off to such a good start. Yes, this is our all Ezekiel analysis section of the show, right? Right. Um, so yeah, uh, Tovar, in Tovar's case, you know there was there was a fair amount to be excited about in the preseason because you know let's start with the obvious. He's a Rocky, right? He's going to play half his games in thin air, and the Rockies seemed pretty committed to sticking with him as their shortstop. They didn't really. Um, you know, bring in a, a sort of a plan B that they could go to if Tovar got got out of the gate slowly. And guess what? Tovar has gotten out of the gate slowly. Um, he's only hitting 172, no home runs, four RBIs, no stolen bases. That's, uh, you know, even thin air can't help those numbers. You know, a 466 OPS and only 70 plate appearances. Um, he's also striking out at a higher, he's whiffing at a high rate. You know, he's swinging and missing 17% of the time, which again, thin air can't help you if you can't put the bat on the ball. He's also not hitting the ball hard or barreling it. So there's still some long-term optimism here before the reasons we were excited about in the preseason, but it sure looks like the, uh, the transition to ev productive everyday big league hitter is going to be a bumpy one for a little while here for Mr. Tovar. And Steven points out that he's not exactly saying, get rid of him off your roster. He's saying you need to have a longer time horizon than thinking that Tovar is going to be of any particular use this season. Yeah, I mean, you could think of, think back to other 
I'm not equating Tovar to this level of prospect, but you could compare him to, say, the struggles of Jared Kelnick the last couple of years, right, in Seattle before he took off, where he would come up, you know, started the year in the majors or came up pretty early in each of the last two seasons, struggled for a handful of weeks, and Seattle would send him back down to go work on some things. And in some sense, from a fantasy perspective, the Mariners were doing you a favor because you didn't have to make the decision about whether you were going to ride it out with Tovar, with, with uh, Kelnick or not, because they decided they weren't going to ride, out, ride it out. In this case, I think the Rockies probably are more likely to ride him out with Tovar because, like I said, they don't really have a quick alternative at shortstop. And let's face it, whether or not the Rockies know it, they're probably not going anywhere this year. So in some sense, they are incentivized to let Tovar figure it out at the big league level. Uh, but that, again, pushes the decision back on the fantasy manager to say, do you want to keep Tovar on your roster while he's figuring it out, hoping that the light bulb will click on at some point, but taking the risk that, I mean, he's prob- probably not going to hit 172 for the entire season, but you know, there's some, you know, that just underscores that there's some real batting average downside there. And with batting average downside, of course, comes reduced stolen base opportunities, which is one of Tovar's path to value. And uh, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of home runs, but it's going to be something that, as you said, you're going to have to really think about before you make your decisions. Let's move on to some American League pitchers. Cleveland, boy, I'll tell you, Cleveland has developed a reputation for figuring out how to develop pitchers, and there seems to be an endless pipeline of them, and one of them is Tanner Bybee. Uh, Cleveland called him up from AAA and designated left-hander Connor Pilkington for assignment, and Bybee got right into the action and looked pretty good. He did. Uh, you know, first outing, you know, didn't blink, five and two-thirds innings, only allowed one earned run, six hits, eight strikeouts against no, I don't know how much more you can ask for in terms of a kid coming up and proving he belongs, right? Um, and sure enough, he may have earned a you know longer to rotation spot on the heels of that outing. Uh, Terry Francona said after the game that he hadn't made any real decisions past this weekend's trip to Boston. So basically, he's going to go through the rest of the rotation before he figures out whether or not Bybee's going to start again. But they didn't send Bybee down, which I think is a pretty clear indicator that they're at least thinking about giving him another start next Monday or Tuesday. Um, so in, in the meantime, um, if he does stick around, it's probably at the expense of Peyton Battenfield, whose first outing of the season was not as good. Uh, he got knocked around pretty good on Tuesday. Um, so he could, um, Bybee could jump into Battenfield's next spot in the rotation next Tuesday. Uh, so for now, we've, uh, our playing time analyst for the Guardians has given Bybee a slight increase in projected innings, taking them away from the uh, DFA Pilkington. Uh, but we'll stay tuned and see if Bybee sort of continues to stake a claim to stick around for a while. And it probably would only take a uh, couple of starts for <laughs> Frank Cohen to say, okay, kid, you can stay. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like they lack for options. There are other guys in the minor leagues pressing their way forward. And it's also not like the rotation, despite Cleveland's reputation, is all that set. Plesak hasn't been tremendous. Uh, certainly they, they're not married to him in any way. There's a couple of opportunities. We could see two or three of these top prospects make their way into the Cleveland rotation before the year is over. 
Yeah, for sure. This is not going to be one of those staffs where five guys take the ball 30 times each. That's not the way they were set up. And because of the prospects on the way, I think we knew that even coming into the season. For sure, Bieber is entrenched. And let's not forget, Tristan McKenzie is going to be back probably in another month or so, and right. beginning of June. Uh, Aaron Savali should be back even sooner. He's uh, more of a first half of May trajectory, so he's probably the next one who forces somebody out of the rotation. To your point, Plesak hasn't done anything special. Cal Quantrill is getting knocked around a little bit too. It sort of seems like his ability to outpitch his skills is uh, turning into a pumpkin, as it were. So those guys are sort of on watch, uh, and they have – Bybee, they have Logan Allen, who made a spot start. Uh, there's Pilkington, uh, excuse me, Battenfield. Um, you know, all of those guys are sort of knocking at the door. So Quadrill, Plesak, whoever does not uh, stake a claim to the rotation spot will not get one just based on, you know, history and name recognition value alone. And a little later on in the show, uh, Alex Becky's frequent flyer is going to look at yet another Cleveland starting pitcher who might make a, a splash. His guy's name is Gavin Williams. I don't know if you. Oh yeah, sure. That's another one. So yeah, they, they've got a embarrassment of riches over there. And sometimes I wonder why they don't be more active in the trade market with some of these guys. Gosh, you might be able to pick up uh, some hitters uh, because heaven knows. Yeah, you don't think they could turn, turn. You don't think they could turn those pitchers into an upgrade on I don't know Miles Straw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. They could uh, they could do that more easily than trading away a top uh, pitcher. I'd I'd be looking for a bigger upgrade maybe than that. Um, I mentioned earlier that Stephen Nickrand had a slow start sell column on some of the batters who have been struggling so far this year, and one of the pitchers he mentioned in the pitcher version of this was Toronto starter Alec Manoa, who has really been struggling. Yeah, I mean Manoa was sort of a <coughs> you know. Uh, Guy HQ was our projections were lower on than the industry, you know, just for for sort of classic reasons this offseason, you know, just that he had outpitched his skills last year. If you remember last year, you know, he was of course brilliant with 16 wins and a 224 ERA and a sub one whip, but that was backed by an expected ERA that was 381 for the full season, uh, which also happened to be right in line with what he put up for an expected ERA in his rookie year. So in 2021, so put those things together and we can sit here pretty confidently and say, we think he's a 380 ERA pitcher on a skills basis. Unfortunately, he's going to cost you more than that because his outward results were so much better than that last year. Of course, none of the above goes anywhere toward explaining how bad he's been this year to your point, PD. You know, his ERA was knocking on seven for a while there, although he actually had a good outing last weekend against the Yankees that brought his ERA back, you know, into the stratosphere. And, you know, he's still just over five with, uh, you know, a pretty troubling 16 walk, 21 strikeout ratio in 26 innings. So, uh, you know, overall, things are pretty bleak in the short term here that well, maybe that last start was a bit of a turning point. We'll see how his, uh, how his next outing this weekend goes, but, uh, you know, I think it was pretty easy for Steven to call him a slow start sell, as you say, because we were off sort of off of him to begin with. And, you know, he, even with our lowered expectations, he was coming in comfortably below those. Minnesota put starting pitcher Kenta Maeda on the IL Rick Green covering the story for playing time today. Maeda seems to have avoided serious elbow injury. The 
Injury was diagnosed, at least at first, as a muscle strain. And interestingly, the Minnesota rotation was covered this week by two Baseball HQ analysts, Ryan Bloomfield in the Skills Looking for Roles speculator column we mentioned earlier, and Brian Rudd in Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the American League Central. And the main question here, of course, is who gets Maeda's innings? And Ryan and Brian seem to have reached similar conclusions. Yeah, boy, the Maeda thing is just sort of a reminder of not, to me at least, of not getting too into the highs and lows of the early season. Um, I rostered a ton of Maeda this winter. I thought he was just undervalued as he was coming back from uh, from missing last season. But there was, good, I thought, good reason to see that you know he was uh, had a good chance to get back to his old ways. And through two starts, at least, it looked like he was. Um, you know, he had no walks and twelve strikeouts in his first two starts and eleven innings pitch, which looked pretty promising. Then he pitched in Boston um, and took a line drive off of I think his ankle um, and had a short outing because of that, um, which yeah looked like just a one off. He didn't miss a start because of it. I think they pushed him back a day. But then he goes out in uh, against the Yankees. A gets totally knocked around to the tune of ten or runs in three innings, and then comes off the mound and is like, "Oh yeah, by the way, my elbow feels terrible," which is like the worst case scenario in like all possible in, in all possible ways. Yeah, um, couldn't have mentioned he, that an hour ago. Yeah, it's, 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 this is exactly where I am. Right? Did you have to go out for the third inning, Kenta? <laughs> but so yeah, to your point, now he's going to get some time off to rest the elbow, even though it sounds like it's not. Uh, a structural issue in the elbow. So in terms of who gets the starts, uh, you know, two guys for the Twins who we've actually already seen this year in fill-in roles, uh, Bailey Ober and Louis Varland are probably the next two up. Um, and quietly, this has become a pretty good staff here. The team, uh, the Twins as a roster, are leading MLB in K-BB percentage and strikeout rate and an XFIP, and they're top five in a whole bunch of other categories. So these are sort of not your um, ancestors' Twins rotation. So Ober himself, one of just 13 starters last year who had a 13% swing strike rate at a 33% ball rate. Um, so that speaks to his command right out of the gate. He did make one start last week in a fill-in through 89 pitches, allowed just one run in five and two-thirds with you know a mediocre 4K three-walk three, three walk, uh, split. But in the minors, in four starts at AAA this year, he had 22 strikeouts in just 18 innings. So he's been uh, cutting through AAA batters and looks like he, he's probably the guy who's going to get a chance to uh, deal with major league batters for as long as Maeda's out. Yeah, Brian Rudd said Ober's likely first man back as well, but what did the guys say about Louis Varland? Yeah, also interesting. It looks like he's going to be, you know, sort of in the on-deck circle for the next post-Maeda rotation opening. Uh, you know, he got, he got interesting last year based on a breakout in the minors that was fed by, you know, one of these velocity upticks and a new cutter and like all the stuff that makes you sort of reevaluate a pitcher from scratch, right? He also made one cup of coffee start uh, earlier this month, uh, it was April 14th, he gave up three earned runs on three solo home runs, but struck out um, eight Yankees in six innings of work. Uh, before and after that, he was working in AAA, um, got, you know, gave, gave up some runs there, six earned runs in 10 innings, but across those two starts. But, you know, that came with a 17 to 2 strikeout to walk ratio, which 
makes me ask all questions about what kind of defense was being played behind him in those games because it sounds like every time the ball got put on the bat, it went through under or around somebody. Yeah. Right. Uh, so so over for now, but, you know, uh, tuck Varland away as the, uh, the next time you hear some other Twins pitchers elbow is barking or back hurts or has whiplash or, you know, whatever happened, whatever's going to happen to Sonny Gray next week, because we're about due for one of those injuries. Uh, you know, Varland is worth keeping on your radar screen as well. And uh, Brian Rudd, just being thorough, mentioned right-handers Aaron Sanchez and Randy Dobnak, but I think we can safely ignore them here at Baseball HQ Radio because we got to move on to the Boston Red Sox, your beloved Red Sox, uh, still another guy doing one of your jobs is Chris Olson, who has been pinch hitting for you here on Baseball HQ Radio's Market Watch News segment while you were on holidays. In his regular BHQ work, Chris covers the five teams in the American League East for playing time tomorrow, and this week his coverage included a look at the Boston rotation, which is either fluid or a work in progress or maybe a tire fire. The latest turn has been a somewhat surprising decision by the Red Sox to demote right-hander Brian Bayo. What's going on? Yeah, it's interesting. All through March, it kind of seemed like as the, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty in Florida about the Red Sox rotation, and it seemed like the constants in the rotation were Chris Sale and Bayo. And most of the reason for that actually was less about Bayo and more about the unavailability or readiness of the other guys in the rotation, uh, namely Garrett Whitlock and Tanner Houck, both of whom were coming back from offseason surgery, were a little bit late to start to, to start camp, and Whitlock eventually wasn't ready to start the season in the rotation. Uh, but those guys are both in the rotation now, and the decision that the Red Sox basically faced was do they want to take one of Houck and Whitlock, both of whom have experience relieving and put one of them in the rotation to keep Bayo, put one of them in the bullpen, excuse me, to keep Bayo in the rotation, or do they want to keep Garrett Whitlock and Houck in the rotation and send down Bayo? And they chose the latter option, which I think is basically an indication just that Houck in particular is pitching sufficiently well that they just couldn't take him out of the rotation. Um, obviously, there are all sorts of problems with once you take someone like that out of the rotation and put them in the bullpen, they start changing their arsenal. They start losing the ability to throw 90 pitches on command. If you decide to need them, you need them back in the rotation in a month. So I think this is the keep their options open as much as they can option, because even though Bayo is in the minors, Bayo is at least still starting. So all of Bayo, Whitlock, and Hauk are working as starters. And I, th and I think they want to keep them that way for at least another chunk of the season, because I, I don't think they have the confidence that they can put Hauk in the bullpen, for instance, and leave him there for the rest of the year, confident that they won't need him in the rotation. I think they are worried that they would need him in the rotation. And frankly, he's earned that shot, so they're going to leave him there. Meanwhile, what about left-hander James Paxton? James Paxton, Paxton is getting knocked all over my former college stomping grounds of Worcester, Massachusetts in AAA. Um, he had a disastrous outing uh, last late last week when he uh, didn't get out of the first inning without giving up uh, seven runs or something like that. Then he went back to the he went back out there again. I think on Tuesday this week and. It was marginally better, something like four innings and five earned runs, something like that. So the thing about Paxton that's concerning as he gets knocked around in these rehab starts is, you know, for sort of as long as he's been absent 
and let's face it, it's been quite some time now, um, the thought was, well, with Paxton, what you get is he's either good or he's hurt. And he certainly had plenty of time being hurt, but now he's pitching and he's not good in the minors, which is a problem. So um, he will, you know, the Red Sox will presumably leave him on rehab assignment here until he shows that he's good or until he gets hurt again. And given his track record, I think it's probably 50-50 which one of those things happens first. Let's move on to the National League uh, and the hitters. This surprised a lot of people, but not anybody who was watching how outfielder Jordan Walker was playing. He got sent down. And I, I guess that was in part of something we talked about earlier in the season, which was they just got a lot of outfielders and they have to fi- make some decisions to figure out who's going to slot in and who's playing worth having in there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We did touch on this. It was in the context of um, Walker playing and then you know, Lars Newtbar was on the IL early in the season and that sort of eased the pressure on this, uh, this outfield logjam. Then you'll remember the dust up between Tyler O'Neill and uh, Ali Marmol, the manager, about uh, about O'Neill's hustle in some situation. And as a result, O'Neill got a few games down. But overall, uh, you know, the concern here was that the Cards have a lot of outfielders. The Cards have a lot of guys on the bench who can actually, you know, not just are legitimate outfielders, but other guys who can jump out to the outfield or fill the DH spot, that sort of thing. There's a, and and a lot of the other guys are hitting, which just kind of raised the floor of what you needed to do to stick in this lineup. And I think we probably got to the point with Walker where, you know, if he's going to lose some playing time in the majors and he wasn't hitting badly, but he wasn't setting the world on fire either. If they're going to play him two days out of three or three days out of five or something like that, because they have so many alternatives, maybe it's better to just send him down to triple A, let him play every day and get hot and bring him back. Then I, I wouldn't be surprised if we'd see him again in a matter of weeks rather than months, either because the log jam and the majors clears up or because Walker gets hot in AAA and kind of kicks the door down. But for now, uh, he's exiled to, uh, is it Louisville until, uh, <laughs> Memphis, he's exiled to Memphis until one of those things happen. A good blues situation in Memphis. So it's not a hundred percent bad, but, uh, Walker was actually not hitting that badly. It doesn't look to me from the slash line, you know, uh, 274, 321, 397. That's not horrendous. A 720-ish OPS. It's not great either. How much of this was down to the fact that he just wasn't fielding the position very well? I think that was a part of it. Let's not forget that, you know, this is a Cardinal organization that had, what, five gold glove winners last year. And, you know, was it two of them in the outfield or was it all three of them? Um, you know, clearly it's, they place a high value on, the defensive side of the ball and Walker was having some struggles there. You know, let's also not forget that um, the central, the NL central standings are a little bit upside down. The Cardinals are in last place and admittedly it's the pirates who were in first place, surprisingly, and maybe yeah. we shouldn't take that all that seriously, but there might've been a little bit uh, of a loss of patience in St. Louis or a need to, you know, put some focus on, Hey, we need to win some ball games and, you know, Jordan Walker's development can continue in the minors because we've got to put our best team offensively and defensively on the field every day, lest we lose touch with the pirates. And when was the last time we said that? 
Well, St. Louis has often lost touch with the Pirates, but as you said, it was the other way around. Couldn't see them without a telescope, but they were looking down rather than up, and that was the big difference. You know, this is something we talked about when we were discussing in the preseason, I believe, the St. Louis outfield situation, and the possibility was already being presented that Jordan Walker might find himself in left field because he's well and thoroughly blocked at third base, of course. They've got a a borderline Hall of Famer, I think, in Nolan Arenado there, and he's going to be around for a few more years. So it seemed like the only path that Walker was going to have to playing time was to get out there in the outfield, and it looks like it might be just one of those experiments that didn't pan out because playing the outfield in the big leagues is a lot harder than it looks, especially if you haven't done it very much in your previous baseball experience. And I think Walker was pretty much 100% full-time third baseman as he was coming up. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the other thing about it that, you know, while I was in the previous comments I was pointing to the outfield competition, you know, the other outlet that we thought we had for Walker in the preseason was for him to DH a lot, but Nolan Gorman has kind of taken that job and run with it uh, because, you know, Gorman and Brendan Donovan are handling second base and DH so well. And that's the other thing that the other place that a month ago we might've projected, well, even if Walker can't figure out left field, he can DH five days a week, but that hasn't really proven to be the case either. So just another reason why you know, another aspect of the, uh, the Cardinals depth of hitters, both in the infield and outfield that really just squeezed Walker out of any of the places where he could have fit into this lineup, unless he tore the cover off the ball, which as we said, he was respectable, but he didn't tear the cover off the ball. And as you mentioned, St. Louis puts a premium on defensive ability, and it could be that they're just not that enamored of having a DH-only type of player on the roster. They want Walker, if he's going to play, he has to grab a glove and make some contributions on that side, because I think that's just the team philosophy. And as you said, I mean, Gorman's playing some second base. At least he's helping out with the glove once in a while. And I don't know if they wanted to pin Jordan Walker into such a narrow definition at this point in his career and maybe they just said go down there for a couple of weeks or a month and figure out how to play left field properly get some good coaching and you'll be back and I think he will be back. Uh, Greg Jewett of BaseballHQ.com has an excellent weekly column it's new this year called Lineup Outlook in which he gets out his microscope and looks through the box scores to see how players roles might be changing especially with regard to batting orders. This week he looked at San Francisco's batting lineup, and in particular, he was interested in Tyro Estrada. This was good. Yeah, this was good. Greg does a great job with this piece. One of the things I like most about the way he approaches these lineup questions is that he starts out by essentially thinking of every team as having two lineups, right? They have a right-handed line, a lineup versus right-handed pitchers and a lineup versus left-handed pitchers. And the Giants, his, you know, one of his case studies this week are as typical or as, you know, extensive an example of that as anybody in baseball. They, you know, as we saw in the playing time work that Ed Dicaria did this offseason, the Giants is sort of the poster child for, you know, as much as you can in this day of shortened benches, exploiting the platoon advantage and getting left-handers in against right-handed pitchers and right-handers in against left-handed pitchers as much as you can. Um, as it, as this bears out with Estrada, he's become the leadoff hitter against left-handed pitching three of the last four games this week as the Giants ran into a spat of southpaws but against righties he tends to drop down to the number six hole which 
it just gives you a different profile. You're that's going to hurt your runs and RBIs a little bit, but it also, but it also, uh, what Greg points out is that, you know, getting down in the lineup like that does kind of free up Estrada to run a little bit more. So he's been running, um, running more when he's down in the lineup facing the right-handed pitchers. Um, and last year, eight, eight stolen bases and 11 attempts. So if he's getting more of a green light um, and or hitting a little bit more to get, give himself more opportunities, then that that gets uh, pretty promising from a uh, potential value perspective for Estrada. I wondered about that uh, idea that RBIs are going to go down when you move from leadoff down to sixth because – is is that so? It just seems intuitive to me that I'd rather be hitting sixth if I wanted to drive in runs behind the three, four, five guys than be hitting first and looking for RBIs behind the seven, eight, nine guys. Yeah, you're. It's a, it's an interesting point, and to me, it's probably somewhat dependent on the structure of the lineup and how good your three, four, five in front of you are. I mean, obviously, those are supposed to be your better hitters, but you know, some teams have you know, 400 OBP guys in those spots. And some teams have sluggers who don't come with that OBP, right? And obviously, if you're batting sixth in front of three guys with 400 OBPs, well, yeah, they're going to be on base a lot in front of you, right? But then that's the trade-off with what Greg is pointing out here is that if those guys are on base in front of Estrada when he's batting sixth, he's not going to be as free to run because, you know, Michael Conforto or somebody is going to be, you know, on for on second base when he gets to first base, and then he's not going to be able to run. So, um Six, you know, it's all trade-offs, right? Yeah, it is for sure. Uh, Greg's latest lineup column uh, came out today, Friday, and he looked at the Nationals, who have six of the next seven games versus right-handers, and that led him to mention three hitters he thought were looking at. Yeah, and I love it when, you know, I'm reading an article and Greg or somebody calls out someone, and I'm like, oh, Excellent. I've been, meeting, I've been meeting to go look and see what's going on with this guy. And uh, the first one that Greg picked up today was one of those for me. It was Alex Call, who's uh, caught my eye in the box scores recently because he's gone six for 19 with a home run in the last four or five games, four walks and four strikeouts, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but the reason he was catching my eye wasn't so much the performance as much as he's been batting leadoff. Um, and why is he been batting lead off? Because he's been, you know, a small sample size, but he's been rocking a 526 OBP. And when your OBP starts with a five, yeah, you're going to get moved up to the top of the lineup pretty quickly. Um, you know, this is not a season changer in terms of fantasy impact, but um, if he gets installed in the leadoff spot versus righties, maintains a decent OBP, a little bit of power, uh, you know, maybe some short-term value there, even, um, even though he has to cool off from that current OBP, but maybe it's more of a soft landing that crash and burn. I don't play DFS anymore, but when I read this Alex call bit in Greg's column, my first thought was, I bet Alex calls really cheap in DFS. Yeah, totally. Totally. What about uh, Heimer Candelario also got mentioned? Yeah, he's another one. And, you know, it's the, uh, this Nationals lineup is uh, not exactly the 27 Yankees, but uh, Candelario, even as much as a, it's a watered down lineup, uh, you know, he's occupying some prominent places in it. Um, you know, he's playing every day. He's batted second, third, fourth, uh, all, you know, split between those three spots in his last 10 or 11 games. Uh, his slash line is 296, 360, 500 slug, three doubles, two home runs, six RBIs. Um, he has four home runs this year. They're all off of right-handers. So, 
you know, there's some, uh, you know, again, this lineup is not likely to go out and hang up a double digit run total uh, all that often. You know, it's not an explosive lineup, but, uh, you know, Candelario, uh, it, you know, and these things all chain together, right? Candelario is getting some more RBI opportunities because uh, Alex Call is on base 50% of the time in front of him. I remember at first pitch Arizona in the facts and flukes uh, panel that we had on Saturday morning, one of the names that came up was Kiebert Ruiz of the Nationals and some positive news on him from Greg Druid as well. Yeah, he uh, was sort of a, you know, tagged by some as a breakout candidate coming into this year. And it looks like that might be uh, coming to fruition. He's also occupying the middle of this lineup, you know, bouncing around in the four, five, six range. Uh, he, in his in his last 10 games, or um, he's hitting 375 with a four or five slug and a four or five OBP and a 500 slug. So that's a, you know, 900 plus OPS. Uh, only one home run, but a couple of doubles, five RBIs. Again, the team context for run scoring here is less than fantastic. Uh, but the best news is, you know, for a right-handed hitting catcher, um, he has a career 260 batting average right on right, which means that the batting average floor there is pretty decent. Um, and he's hitting even better against them this year, 316 uh, in 63 plate appearances, small sample size. But, you know, the contact skills, the right on right skills are pretty good here, which means that even if the, you know, even if we don't see a 20 home run ceiling for him just yet, that, uh, you know, he could still fill up the stat sheet by hitting, you know, 250, 260 and uh, accumulating his runs and RBIs that way. I don't remember if Jake McCarthy got into our facts and flukes panel. My mind says probably not, but he was a very popular sleeper candidate, not even a sleeper candidate. Guys were being recommending him at, you know, round 12, round 13, because Jake McCarthy, a little bit of power, a lot of speed, and he may have those things, but he's going to be flashing them in AAA. They sent him down and recalled corner infielder Emmanuel Rivera. Jake Crumpler covered the story for playing time today at baseballhq.com. I think the big problem here was just like St. Louis, too many guys in the Arizona outfield and Jake McCarthy wasn't getting the job done as well as some of the others. I think that's right. And I also think one of the points I made about the Cardinals applies here as well is I think the D-backs think of themselves as a contender in that division. You know, they've the Dodgers have, of course, owned that division for a while. The Padres have all the hype, but both of those have gotten off to a slow start. The, the D-backs actually sit in first place ahead of both of those today, and I think they smell a little bit of blood in the water and want to um, want to try to take advantage of it. So they're kind of trying to, you know, take the uh, weak batter out of the lineup here. And you know, much like Walker, I wouldn't be surprised if we see McCarthy back in a couple of weeks. He was struggling for sure at the plate, but his underlying skills didn't look that bad. You know, he wasn't striking out a ton. Um, his hit rate was just abysmal. Uh, even though he was hitting 143 for his actual batting average, his expected batting average was 245. So he wasn't it wasn't one of those completely flailing, lost you know, can't, you know, find his way out of a box kind of uh, situation. It just seems like he was getting a little bit of babbit to death. So maybe he goes down, you know, hit, hits some balls hard. They start falling in and we see him back relatively soon. But for now, it's going to be uh, going to be Corbin Carroll, Alec Thomas, Lourdes Gurriel, Pavin Smith, all of whom were outperforming McCarthy in the majors, who now will hold down the outfield and probably a chunk of the DH work too. 
Yeah, I think barring injury, Carroll and Alec Thomas are going to be locks in that outfield. So it's really kind of McCarthy's going to have to force his way in as one of the three guys chasing the one remaining spot, although there's DH as well, I guess. Uh, Jay Crumpler says that uh, Smith is going to see the largest increase in playing time and Rivera probably mostly just against left-handers. Let's move on to National League pitchers. Uh, the Dodgers activated right-hander Tony Gonsolin from the I.L., and they optioned right-hander Andre Jackson to AAA. Gonsolin was a positive revelation in 2022 at XERA under 3, 087 whip. Uh, good ground balls, uh, decent enough strikeout minus walks. What is the fallout from the return of Tony G? Yeah, I mean, they've had so much attrition in the rotation there. Very happy to welcome him back, of course. Um, you know, he was brilliant last year and, you know, ended up on the I.L. to start the season. So he slots right back into the rotation. Um, I don't think we can reasonably expect him to replicate last year's success, which was heavily influenced by a uh, 207 opponent's BABIP against him. Um, so they brought him back pretty quickly after just one rehab start. Um, and as a result, he was only ready for 65 pitches in his first game in Pittsburgh. It uh, wasn't great. It was a PQS2 outing, uh, no earned runs, but you know, only three walks and two hits allowed against one strikeout. So he wasn't exactly shredding the Pirates. Um, he'll um, start again early next week against the Phillies, um, and we'd expect him to, you know, stretch out over the next two or three starts and see him back to uh, his usual ninety-plus pitch workload. We're going to go back to that slow start, sell starting pitcher buyers guide. Stephen Nickrand cited five pitchers as low sell low guys. Uh, one of them is Philly left-hander Bailey Falter, who had uh, a bit of a breakout in twenty twenty-two, but this year, well, faltered. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and his problem has been the the big inning, which is, uh, you know, obviously a common bugaboo for pitchers. I'm reminded of his teammate uh, Aaron Nola, who is obviously of a much better pitcher pedigree, but kind of suffers from the same problem from time to time. In Falter's case, um, 450 ERA so far this year and a 118 whip. I mean, those don't scream sell, sell, sell. Uh, but as Steven points out, the underlying skills are you know, really quite mediocre. Uh, strikeout rate of 14% is well below average. Pairs okay with a 5% walk rate, but you know you do the simple math there, and his K minus BB is only nine, which is uh, suboptimal for sure. Gets away with that a little bit with a uh, 40, 47% ground ball rate, but sum all of that together, you get a BPV uh, base performance value, sort of our one number pitcher metric of 69, which is, uh, I haven't checked, but it's either right around or just below league average this year. So uh, just nothing special here is really the uh, really the bottom line and no reason to really expect that uh, the late season value he provided last year is going to carry over, especially not with when, he, when he's not generating uh, swings and misses at all. It's one of the lowest swing strike rates in the game for starters or relievers. In San Francisco, Ray, the Giants rotation has had an intriguing slash frustrating start for fantasy managers. The right-handers Logan Webb, Alex Cobb, and Anthony DiSclefani have all been starting, while left-hander Sean Manaya and right-hander Ross Stripling have kind of bounced back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation. Dan Marcus covers the Giants in his weekly playing time tomorrow roster forecasting. What does Dan think is going to happen with the San Francisco rotation? 
Yeah, this was interesting. I appreciated Dan's insights on this because this was another one of those situations where I was kind of looking at what the Giants were doing here over the course of the first, you know, three times through the rotation or so and trying to figure out what the heck they were up to, basically, because I could I just couldn't make heads or tails of it. I think Mania and Stripling each started once and then relieved the other. You know, one of them would go three innings. And then I think in one of those games, like Stripling went three or four innings as starter and Mania came and went like five or six after him as the reliever and they were clearly like working like a a minor league style you know tag team sort of thing um but they were flipping back and forth where who who was the starter and who was the reliever who was getting more work and who was getting less and i i think i've come to the conclusion or dan came to the conclusion for me that what was going on here was that they were basically just trying to keep both of these guys benaya and stripling stretched out and ready to start because they probably wisely knew that they would a day would come when they would need them both to start and wanted them both ready to do so without having to like re restretch out or anything and sure enough that comes to pass as alex wood probably inevitably uh went down with a hamstring injury this week so both of these guys are ready to sort of separate from being one combo starter and turn into two regular starters that said you know their performance has both been a little bit erratic uh stripling um has sort of been the closest thing over the last couple of years that we have on multiple teams from the dodgers to the jays to now the giants uh, he's kind of the closest thing to being like a true swing man that we have in the game um you know he starts he does multiple inning, multiple inning relief appearances he gets hurt he does it again kind of thing um but he's also gotten tagged been absolutely brutal to start the season um a 38% home run per fly will do that. Um, but um, Benaya hasn't really been much better. Um, he was sort of a spring training darling for a velocity increase um, that we were hoping would lead to more swing and miss, more strikeouts. Uh, but that hasn't really happened yet. Um, maybe it'll translate as he uh, as his role kind of clarifies here as we're talking about. But um the Giants will continue to do giant things, I think, and we'll, both of these guys will try will slide into rotation for a couple of turns at least while we wait on Wood. But I wouldn't think either one of them are exactly inked in there for the long term. Any help coming up from the miners? Yeah, they they, they do have some help, which is one of the reasons why I don't think. Um, either Stripling or Manaya should get too comfortable in the rotation. Uh, going back to spring training again, one of the spring darlings was uh, Kyle Harrison, who's a left-handed starting pitcher. Um, he didn't make the team. They sent him out, but he's their sort of, um, you know, crown jewel of the uh, farm system, for, at least from a pitching perspective. Um, he's started five games in AAA so far, but they're clearly handling him very carefully. He's only thrown 12 innings in five starts. Um, with 17 walks and 12 innings so it's not a, it's not just uh you know we're handling you with kid gloves it's also a he can't find home plate problem um so there are a lot of eyes on him um and when he starts to find home plate more consistently uh by summer you can certainly imagine a scenario where he slots into this rotation somebody to look at at milb.com to see if he gets things sorted out. He, uh, I noticed that he had a 53% strand rate and a 39% hit rate, which are not going to help the old ERA, but still uh, <laughs> the uh, 17 walks and 12 innings. And at one point, I think I saw that he was 
like way over two for his whip because of the uh, huge amount of hits and the huge amount of walks. So, you know, he comes up with a 225 whip. I don't imagine there'll be a huge lineup forming for uh, fab bidding. Might still be worth a, a, a flyer because, you know, stick him on your reserve and see what happens. Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, glad to have you back. And we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good, PD. Thank you. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, a projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod. But let me first highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site right now in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide. Columnist Doug Dennis looks at early problems in several bullpens. The Bullpen Buyer's Guide is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com and the Prospect 361 podcast. Tim, welcome back to part two. Yeah, looking looking forward to talking some Asian baseball. I am too, because you've established a reputation in the fantasy industry as a guy who's really a, a go-to guy as far as baseball, especially in the Far East in Japan and Korea. And how did you get involved in doing that? Well, uh, basically what happened, and this is going back a number of years ago, oh, about 2004 or so, I believe, uh, I was playing and hanging out at Peter Kreitzer's Ask Rotoman message board, and he was looking for somebody that uh, knew a little bit about Japanese baseball and could provide some uh, some thoughts as far as future players uh, for the magazine, the Fantasy Baseball Guide, and uh, I responded to his request and wrote a capsule up that said Dice K. Matsuzaku is going to break the bank when he comes over in a year and a half. Peter printed it. And from there, it was just one thing that led to another. I started getting interested in Japanese Asian baseball oh, in the late 1990s. And uh, hey, I, I got Dice K. right. And it just sort of grew from there. And uh, I absolutely love it, and I have to thank Peter for allowing me the opportunity to to basically get started. Originally, you said it was Japanese baseball. You've since uh, added Korean baseball. When did you take that step? Uh, around this, around the same time, give or give or take, there just isn't as much coming out of Korea. The, you know, rel relevant coming out of Korea as there is Japan. So I, for the most part, like I said, both have been part of the program for a number of years now, Patrick. Have you ever been over to either ja Japan or Korea to watch some ball? Uh, I'm not big on flying. So until I get that bridge oh, I built. Forgot, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hard, hard, hard to drive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a long, long, long trip. No, I've never been to Japan. I've spent, uh, I've spent hours and hours reviewing tape and YouTube provides no shortage of opportunities to take a look at, at any player you want to take a, a look at. So YouTube plus there's, uh, veteran, uh, veteran media types in Japan that I've followed for a long time. Jim Allen is one. He's a great guy knows his stuff and you know jason cosgrave is another one uh 
I, again, it's just a matter of developing, developing some contacts, you know, watching tape on YouTube and keeping up with the news. Speaking of news, I know there's a lot of listeners who try to follow the Asian leagues because they're interested in spotting the next Daisuke Matsuzaka or especially Ichiro. Of course, if you can find him uh, coming before and get him on your roster before everybody else even knows about him. But I think there's also a lack of understanding about how the whole system just works. And we've talked about this before in past mm -hmm. years on Baseball HQ Radio. But here's a real basic question, Tim. When do the seasons start and end for Japanese baseball and Korean baseball? Uh, basically, they follow, uh, give, or, give or take, they, they pretty well follow the same schedule as Major League Baseball. Of course, in a 12-team league, you're looking at uh, fewer teams making the playoffs, and the playoffs are far shorter than uh, what we see in Major League Baseball. Uh, but other than that, they pretty well follow the same schedule. They start a little bit earlier. I believe they end a little bit earlier. And their schedule is, I believe, 144 games right now. It's a little shorter. In the past, we've all heard about some very high pitch counts and starts on short rest in Japanese baseball, starting, I think, at the high school level. You hear some monstrous pitch totals coming for their starting pitchers. How are uh, Japanese and Korean teams managing pitcher workloads these days, given what we know about health? Uh, yeah, those those days are clearly in the rearview mirror. Uh, you know, you, you you take a look at, well, here's, here's a prime example. Right, right now, probably the best pitcher on the planet not pitching in Major League Baseball, would be Roki Sasaki. And an absolutely amazing young pitcher. We saw him in the WBC, but he had a run last year where he pitched a perfect game and then pitched eight perfect innings in the next outing. They pulled him because of pitch counts. Uh, I, I think uh, the days of 140, 150 pitches out of a 22-year-old are pretty much a thing of the past. And... Those, you know, those, those arms are being protected a lot better than they were, say, 20 years ago. Their game is evolving and changing much the, much the same as uh, the North American game. And that's good news. I know when I, when I was first paying attention to when those Japanese ballplayers were coming over, one of the things that we heard about the pitchers was, you know, be very careful because some of these guys have thrown 200 pitch games, you know, and stuff like that. And they did it in grade school. And yeah. so you, you have to treat every one of them coming over with a grain of salt because they tended to be older as well mm -hmm. and have a lot of mileage on them. But uh, as you said, it, it looks like it's a lot better. We saw three players leave Japan for biggish contracts in Major League Baseball this offseason. Uh, let's get your take on them as far as their Japanese experience. Starting pitcher Kodai Senga with the Mets, what was he like as a Japanese player? Uh, he, he was an ace. He was a top-tier pitcher. And... Um, uh, a little bit older, uh, so far so good with the Mets. His walk rates are a little higher than I expected, uh, thus far, but I think there'll be a correction there. And I, I think Kode Senga will be a solid number three, possibly low number two starter as the season uh, continues. The Red Sox signed outfielder Masataka Yoshida in the off season. He looks okay as a major league player. Was he a super dominant Japanese player? Well, that signing generated, a, I'm, I'm going to say a little bit of shock because I, I, I 
think the Red Sox were considerably higher on Yoshida than most other teams. But the one thing that he has always done is produced a high OBP. Okay, he's got four homers thus far, which I'm finding a little surprising, but I, I think he is what he is. I was I, I sort of thought that he would be the perfect number two type hitter. And that, you know, you could be looking at 15 to 18 home runs, but he'll get on base with the opportunity to score runs. The Red Sox seems to seem to like him in the fourth spot, and he's been he's been playing fairly well. But I, I think you're looking at 15 to 20 home runs with a solid OBP. He'll be, he'll be a good player. And starting pitcher Shintaro Fujinami came over to Oakland and frankly has been one of the worst pitchers in baseball, just completely horrible. What are the odds based on his Japanese track record that Fujinami can turn things around and become at least rosterable for fantasy purposes? Because he sure isn't now. I'd say the odds are about the same as the Oakland Athletics winning the World Series this year. Okay, so we're ruling out a Cy Young for yes. Shintaro Fujinami and a World Series title for Oakland. Got it. Okay. Yeah, no. I, when Fujinami came over, the the problem was not the stuff. It wasn't the velocity. It was it was a problem that he experienced over the past five, six years, and had seen him demoted to the Japanese minor leagues numerous times. His control. Okay, the, the stuff is great. He just doesn't have... He has, not, he has no idea where it's going. He really doesn't. And uh, I had I, I don't have him in any of my leagues. I, I saw enough with what happened in Japan. I thought there was a chance he could be a decent relief pitcher in short bursts, you know, get him in there for an inning, maybe two max. But again, it's it's all about uh, it's all about finding the strike zone. And no, as a starter, hey, but the Oakland A's took a chance. They made a small investment, hoping on a one year deal that they could see Fujinami pitch well enough, I believe, with the idea of moving him at the trade deadline for something. Well, it didn't work out, no. and I don't think as a starter it's going to work out. But, hey, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he finds some success in the bullpen. Again, in short bursts. 13 walks in 17 innings so far this year in the majors is not going to get the job done, that's for sure. No. Um, I read somewhere, Tim, that when Shohei Otani made his move to Major League Baseball, he chose to literally miss out on tens of millions of dollars yes. because of a Major League Baseball rule about amateur status. Can you explain that? Well, basically, yeah, and unless you're 25 years of age, uh, the rules as they currently exist, you are a, you're an amateur player. And if you sign under the age of 25, you are subject to all of the, the six years, yada, 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 and, and away you go, which is why you're seeing players, uh, like, uh, uh Yamamoto looking at coming over next year. It's why you're looking at, Murakami, one of the best bats in Japan today, he signed a three-year deal, which brings him to his age 25 season. You're not going to see a lot of movement in younger players unless, unless they bypass their country's draft and go straight to Major League Baseball, which they can do, okay? You're not going to see many players under the age of 25 heading to Major League Baseball simply because of the rules in play. 
I, I think Yamamoto is going to probably generate a contract 175 mil. Okay, is he going to sign at 23 for the major league minimum with a $2 million bonus? Otani wanted to get here. He wanted to get here badly and prove himself. He rolled the dice on himself and won. But I don't think you're going to see a lot of it moving forward. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, that's really interesting when we're looking at them. So keep an eye on guys who are 25 plus or have, who have contracts expiring mm-hmm. at age 25 because it mm-hmm. gives them a, a better financial opportunity. But you're right. Otani made his bet on himself and it looks like he's going to cash in. I've seen uh, estimates of a $500 million contract when he becomes a free agent at the end of this year. Uh, that'll certainly uh, probably tweak the interest of a lot of young Japanese players, uh, guys who might think, well, if he can do it, I can do it kind of thing, but uh, quite a penalty to pay at the start. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely a huge penalty. And yeah, hey, Otani won the bet. Good for him. And right now I would have to say uh, of all the players in Major League Baseball, he is the one that it's a, every time I get the opportunity to see him pitch, especially pitch. It's, it's a, it's, it's a can't miss opportunity. You, you've got to, you got to love what he's doing. He is the best player in the game today, bar none. And a genuine Babe Ruth character as well. I mean, n- not in the drinking and carousing and eating hot dogs idea, but you know, a top flight pitcher and a top flight hitter at the same time causes a lot of grief for, for fantasy leagues. How do you roster him? What do you charge for him? Do you split him into two guys or just play him as one? All of those kind of things are interesting for leagues to deal with because I think there's going to be more of it in the future, not just Japanese players coming over who can hit and pitch, but American kids, Canadian kids, you know, uh, kids from the Dominican. There's no reason that a guy who can pitch can't hit. Sometimes they can, and I think they're going to, we've seen a drib and a drab of it here and there mm-hmm. over the last couple of years, but I wonder if there's going to be a, a, a bit more of a flood. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if Major League Baseball is ready to accept hitter-pitcher roles. Uh, I hope they are, but again, there, there's a kid that's going to be drafted this year, Paul Skeens from LSU. And right now he is, he's a top three starter heading into the draft. Uh, he's a, he's a top 10 pick. Two years ago, he hit 13 home runs. This year at LSU, they're not using him as a bat. But the kid's got the skills where I think if the team that drafts him wants to explore that opportunity, Paul Skeens is a kid that that might be if his team approves that approach, he, he, he might be a kid that has potential to uh, be an everyday player on both sides. Of course, there are some top drawer Japanese players still in Japanese baseball who could be on their way to the majors as early as next year. I picked out some of them. Uh, let's go in alphabetical yeah. order. You can give us your comments on these players. Uh, the first guy I found was uh, the fellow who started for Team Japan in the World Baseball Classic final game against Team USA, uh, Shoto Imanaga. Yeah, interesting player. Uh, uh, it's it's a situation w- with uh, Imanaga. The the biggest concern is you know he's with the the Bay Stars, and they're not real keen on posting players. As a matter of fact, I think they only posted one, and it was years ago. I I think what you're looking at, there is a situation where they'll probably keep him until he becomes an international free agent. 
and we'll be looking at him heading this way for the 2025 season. Can you briefly go through the the idea of posting and the level of control that the Japanese team has over its players? Uh, basically, it's nine years. Uh, there's an eight-year domestic free agency. Uh, at nine years, they've achieved international free agency. The domestic free agency, uh, if a player moves, I believe they're locked into three years where they can't head into international free agency. Uh, basically, it's, this, it's the same process as what we have here based on service time, except it is, it is nine years. If a player wants to head to North America and play in Major League Baseball before that nine-year period, uh, they have to ask their team to be posted, uh, basically, which is a, a release allowing them to then approach Major League Baseball saying this this player is available and the process goes from there. But all of the control is on the team. A uh, player wants to come and pitch in Major League Baseball. Team says no, there is no recourse. The only recourse is waiting that uh, waiting that nine years. So it's it's uh, again a, a process where players do get posted, but teams aren't under any obligation to do it. And a lot of the teams, not a lot, some of the teams just simply don't entertain the idea. And uh, based on what I've read, Tim, a team that can allow a player to post early doesn't do that for nothing. Well, no, there is, there's money, there, there's money involved in a fairly hefty amount. It's, it's staggered on three percentage levels based on the, the term, the term of the contract and the dollars. And it's, and it's a, a fixed fee. I think it's 20% on the first X, X million and then 17 and a half and then 15%. So yeah, there's, there's a fair chunk of change involved. Definitely. There's a guy, Yuki Matsui, a 27-year-old left-handed reliever. And we should say Imanaga is a left-hander as well, which might yes. make people a little more interested. Uh, mm. Matsui is a left-handed reliever for the Rakuten Eagles. And my first question, does the MLB team that signs him get a 5% cashback reward from Rakuten? Well, of course they would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Matsui is an, an, interesting, an interesting pitcher. Um I think he's got the skill and ability to pitch in Major League Baseball. But one of, one of the problems when it comes to relief pitchers, and, you know, we, we saw it we saw it last year in, I believe it's Yamazaki. Uh, I don't know. I, I think what happened there was there was another pitcher scheduled or looking at coming to Major League Baseball. He signed a six-year deal with his team and stayed in Japan. I think one of the problems with relief pitchers uh, is is a very simple one. Does he want to does he want to come to North America and pitch in a setup role, or does basically he he wants to does he want to put himself into a situation where a team puts itself in a situation where they're going to give him an opportunity to close? And I think that has a big bearing on a lot of these relief pitchers. Yeah, you know, hey, they've got the job in Japan, they've got the role. Do they want to take the chance on not per se having that role when they get to North America? So, hey, I think I think Matsui could be a very effective closer. Will will he make the move? Only time will tell. 
I understand that for another one of these rules, he doesn't have to go through the posting system. He's only 27. Has he been in Japanese baseball nine years already? Uh, it's got to be real close on Matsui. Uh, if he's been there nine, yeah, it's got to be close. I could, I could look at, uh, I could pull it up real quick, but it's got to be close on Matsui. But I think the defining and the decision, the decision to be made is whether or not, you know, he's looking at a team that'll give him a, a shot at closing out games. And if he can find that opportunity, I think there's a possibility he'll take it. There's a right-handed starter, Kona Takahashi. He's 26 years old. He pitches for the Saitama Cebu Lions, and he apparently has very been very public about wanting to get to Major League Baseball. But again, he might get the chance. Is this another issue of team control and the team not being willing to entertain the idea? Yeah, I I don't think we're going to see him see him this year. And yeah, when I look at Takahashi, I think another year. Another year in Japan might might do him well. Okay, Sabu has posted players in the past. Daisuke, that's the team that Daisuke Matsuzaka came from. So I think a, a posting is possible, but I don't see it for next offseason. Now, Yuki Uasawa is a 29-year-old right-hander for the Nippon Ham Fighters. He asked for his posting last off season and the team denied him. So you said he doesn't have any recourse. So A, what is the chances that they agree this time around? And B, what can you tell us about him and his prospects? Uh, I, I think he's a back of the rotation type. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, you know, again, his team holds all the cards and, whether or not they allow him the posting, I, I don't see Uasawa as a player that I'm going to be actively pursuing at this point in time. And you mentioned uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto. He's just 24. He's a right-hander for the Oryx Buffaloes. They're the reigning champions of the league. He's also a top closer, and we get back to the idea of what his role would be in Major League Baseball. But before you talk about him in particular, do relief pitchers have an easier time or a harder time making the transition from Japan to North America? I don't think I don't think there's you know they're given the ball in the ninth inning, they got to get three outs. Uh, I I think the big difference is the opportunities. Okay, when a starter comes over on a posting or as a free agent, yeah, he's going to get every opportunity to start. Closers, not so much. So I think opportunity comes into play. I really don't. I really don't see. You know, we've seen like Coach Uehara for you know Boston. He came over as a starter. It didn't work well. He ended up moving to the bullpen. And had a great run as a closer in Boston, one of their World Series uh, victories in the early 2000s. So uh, I don't I don't think there's a whole lot of difference, Patrick. Uh, yeah, hey, pitcher's got to throw strikes. He throws strikes, does what he can do, and they're successful, right? And I remember a guy that I had on a fantasy roster years ago in the early 2000s, uh, Kazuhiro Sasaki. I think he mm-hmm. pitched in Seattle, and he was a closer there, and he was really good. I mean, he, he rang yeah. up 
I remember for me, he had a 40 plus save year and a couple that were close to 40. And uh, the reason I asked you about the availability of playing time and success in Major League Baseball for Japanese pitchers is he was in his 30s before he even came over. I think he was 31 or 32 years old. And yep. that would give him a chance to get to that nine year where he can become an international free agent and doesn't have to rely right. on the posting. And if he's still being effective in Japanese baseball as a relief pitcher, I thought maybe the path would be easier for him because he can just bypass all of that, you know, contractual nonsense and just throw his hat into the ring here and come over and try to do well. Yeah. And Seattle said to him, basically, when he came over, the job's yours. That doesn't happen every day. Okay. And a lot of cases, success we've seen from uh, Japanese closers uh, in Major League Baseball is something that was many years in the working before that before that success actually occurred. Sasaki was the one an exception to the rule, and that they brought him brought him over and said the job's yours. And he won Rookie of the Year. He took it, and he was the best closer in baseball, arguably, for three years. And then he went back to Japan. Tim, if you were allowed to pick any one of these players right now and stash him for 2024, which one would you take or maybe somebody else? Uh, that's an, that's an easy decision, uh, Patrick, because I've already got one of these players stashed in the, in the XFL and that's, uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Uh, we're talking about an elite level starting pitcher with Yamamoto and he is 24 years old. He's, he's won the Saw Miro Award, the best, uh, the equivalent of the Saw Young in back-to-back -back years. He's won the Pacific League MVP in back-to-back -back years, triple crown winner in back-to-back -back seasons. The only reason he won't repeat that is because Zaki will probably uh, knock him off his perch in the uh, strikeout category. Yeah, it's mid-90s velocity on the fastball, a great splitter and curve. Uh you're looking at a pitcher that I I would hasten to guess that he's going to command a deal in the 175 to 200 million mark as a free agent next year. So when I look at the prospects coming over short term, Yamamoto is at the top of the list, and there is a huge gap between that next person. Uh, He's going to generate incredible interest at the major league baseball level. And I, I think he's got the potential to pitch as, as an ace level pitcher. He's the best pitcher we've seen come over for, from Japan in a long time. Who's not named, uh, of course, Shoei Otani. Well, we haven't seen him come over to North America. So the other question, Tim, is how likely is it that he gets here anytime soon? Well, the rumor mill has it that he will be posted this off season. Whether that comes to fruition, your guess is as good as mine. But everything I'm seeing is leading to me to me for me to believe that we could see him pitching in Major League Baseball next season. I think the odds are better than 50-50. And I think your guess is way better than mine, frankly. Uh, are there any other Japanese players on your radar right now that we haven't talked about? Well, there's hey, there's got to be a there's got to be a one one guy that's got to come to the, the the forefront is Roki Sasaki, and just an amazing player. Okay, the, the kids. Well, he turns twenty two this November. His record this year, uh, he's he's thrown three games, 
He's three and zero. He's gone twenty innings. He's allowed five hits, three walks, no runs, and struck out thirty. Uh, last year he threw. I think his streak went to fifty-two consecutive hitters when he pitched the perfect game and the follow-up eight innings of perfect baseball. He's arguably, yeah, he's an, an amazing pitcher. But again, you're looking at you're looking at three to four years down the road. He hasn't even at this point in time. Every every time he gets a question on North America, it's you know, hey, I've got to do you know better myself in Japan and prove that yada yada yada. So we're looking at three four years. And the other the other player that uh, definitely we will see because he's got it basically written into his contract, and that's Murakami. Uh, Big Bat, uh, he's off to a slow start this season, but kid's got 160 home runs under his belt uh, in the Japanese league, and he's 22 years old. Uh, he's going to generate a fair bit of interest heading into the 2026 season. So there's a name to stash, Munataka Murakami. If your yep. league allows it, uh, quite a quite a player actually. A two seventy eight career average over there with a lot of power. Uh, some yep. years a three hundred hitter, so he, he looks pretty good. Any Korean baseball organization players for us to be interested in as near future transfers? Uh, we're going to see Jun Ho Lee uh, arriving uh, in Major League Baseball next year. Uh, you're looking at a play player that is very young he's 24 he's already got six years in you need seven years uh to seven years in before you can ask for a posting in korea and he qualifies he started as an 18 year old uh he walks more than he strikes out uh we saw a uh, burst upwards in the power to 23 home runs last year uh, definitely, John Holy is a player that everybody will be watching because he will, uh, his teams agree to the posting and we'll see him in 2024, Patrick. You said earlier that uh, there's a pitcher who had it written into his Japanese contract that he would be allowed to leave or allowed to post by his team before the nine years. Is that getting common in Japanese baseball where the big stars are insisting on getting an out as part of their deal? Well, the the player that had written had it written in uh, was Murakami. He signed a three year deal in the off season, and he's got it written into his contract that he will be posted at the end of this current three year deal. That's why we can say right now that we're going to see him in twenty twenty six, assuming you know the health maintains, he continues his uh, his early career production. Yada yada yada. All things being equal. Yeah, he had it. Uh, he had it written into into his agreement, and you know we have seen uh, we've seen players like, for instance, Otani. Uh, there was nothing in writing, and his team let him go a long time before they had to. Uh, obviously, a handshake agreement. We've seen situations. Remember Masahiro Tanaka when he came over. Basically, the owner of the team said, I will post you if our team wins the Japan series and you take us there. Well, he did. You know, I, 
I think he went 24 and 0 in the regular season. He did everything, and that handshake agreement was good enough. And, yeah, there was an agreement in place as far as far as Otani was concerned. What what that was was obviously a handshake agreement. And hey, those things happen in Japan. You know, when somebody gives their word, you do you do X, we'll do Y. It happens, and uh, you know, it happened with Tanaka, and uh, hey, I'm sure it happened with Otani as well. They, they didn't send them over here because they really wanted to. There was an agreement in place, and whatever it was, we don't know, and we probably never will know. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Tim McLeod from Prospects361.com. And Tim, as you know, I like to wrap up these discussion by looking at some boons and banes, and I think we're going to lean on your prospect status, uh, your prospecting status, I guess I should say. Uh, let's start with AA prospects. Uh, in double A, who's a batter you think could be a major league boon? A major league boon, Evan Carter in the Texas organization. He's off to a great start. Kid's young. He's only 20. But right now, Leody Tavares and Jankowski are occupying two outfield spots in Texas. So it's not as if the opportunity is not going to be there at some point in time. It already is there. So I, I like Evan Carter a lot as a player that potentially we'll see this year. That's interesting too, because uh, I remember earlier talking with someone about the Texas outfield situation and they didn't really know what they were going to do in center field. Tavares, I think, was injured and they kind of hoped that Bubba Thompson would step up and he stepped up and fell down, basically. Yeah. And Jankowski's obviously a veteran but he's not the kind of guy who's going to lead you to a World Series in the next five years or eight years or whatever their timetable right. is. But this Evan Carter, yeah, I've, I've heard about him. I read about him on Prospects361.com and elsewhere. Yeah, he's a, he's, yeah. he's quite a prospect for sure. Who's a double-A pitcher who could be a boon? Well, you got, you got to take a look at uh, Andrew Abbott, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say he's a double-A pitcher, but he just got promoted to AAA, and he's in the Reds organization, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in 15 and two-thirds innings at AA, 36 strikeouts as a starter. He's now moved to AAA, which puts him one step closer. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Andrew Abbott is somebody that we're going to see in the second half of 2023, and based on what we've seen thus far, the potential sky high. Left-hander as well. That's always good. Staying in double yeah. A, let's go to the other side. Who's a batter who could be a bane? As we mentioned, Evan, Evan Carter getting off to a really great start in the potential in the Texas outfield. Dustin Harris, another Texas outfielder with both power and speed, has gotten off to a slow start. Uh, under normal circumstances, I would say Dustin Harris will get the would get the first shot, but he's just really stumbled out of the gate. So I'm I'm going to say I'm disappointed with the start from Dustin Harris. And back to the mound, who's a double A pitcher who could be a bane? Well, you start looking at the investment that the Texas Rangers have in Jack Leiter, a former top pick. He's currently sporting a 5.63 ERA. The strikeout numbers are, are solid with 23 and 16 innings pitch, but he's allowed 17 hits and 
basically a walk per inning with 14 walks in his first 16 uh, 16 innings pitched for a whip of 194. Uh Jack Leiter, I would have to say, has been a huge disappointment thus far, and here's hoping he finds a way to uh, to harness those free passes because they are definitely a bane. On the other hand, his Vanderbilt uh, pitching mate, Kumar Rocker, has looked really good in his uh, Texas organization. Yeah, he's off to a great start. Uh, it won't take very long if you know, Rocker continues pitching at the level he's pitching at and Lager continues to struggle. Rocker could pass later on the depth charts in fairly fast order, I think, Patrick. And let's close with your AAA boons and banes. Back to the batters. Who's a AAA batter who's going to be a boon for his fantasy managers? Well, if the Angels can ever figure out what to do with Joe Adele. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it's I think at some point in time and, and now is the time where the Angels either have to play this kid, okay, or move him. And he started the season at AAA with 10 home runs. Okay, leading the leading the PCL. Yeah, the strikeout rates are still high and they might always be high. But the kid has nothing left to prove at AAA. So I would I would hope that something breaks somehow with Joe Adele over the next couple of months. Uh, I say he's got nothing left to prove at AAA. Yeah, I think the problem that guys like him have is they have nothing left to prove at AAA, but they have already proved what they're going to be at Major League Baseball level, which is a quad A kind of player. Uh, the the power's for real, that's for sure. Uh, I guess we'll yeah. have to wait and see. They could certainly use it. Uh, how about a pitcher who's a AAA boon? I really like Matthew, Matthew Liberatore. Uh, in the Cards organization. He's really taken a step up this year. The velocity is up. Control's great. He's off to a really great start. And let's face it, the Cardinals aren't. Uh, but I think we're going to see Liberatory, some, Liberatory sometime in the next couple of months. And I'm liking the changes that he made to his game. I think they're very, very positive. And I think he's got the potential, again, in the second half of the year to show us a little bit more than what we saw last year. Over to the other side, AAA batter who could be a Bane. Remember when Nick Prado was a top prospect? Kansas City Royals? I do. Well, right now he's batting 152. That's not good. That is really not good. If he wants to find his way back to the Royals, he's going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. And a 152 batting average is not getting it done. Not at all. And finally, a AAA pitcher who could be a Bane. Quinn Priester. I believe he's a AAA. He's sporting a 780 ERA, and he's one of the Pirates' top prospects. So uh, that's not getting it done and very disappointing. I was expecting him to move onwards and upwards, not laterally and downwards. Tim McLeod's boons, Evan Carter of Texas, Andrew Abbott of Cincinnati, Joe Adele of the Angels, and Matthew Libertori of St. Louis. His Baines, Dustin Harris of Texas, Jack Leiter of Texas, Nick Prado of Kansas City, and Quinn Priester of Pittsburgh. Tim, this has been terrific. One other player I wanted to mention uh, just briefly. Uh, okay. Henry Davis, the Pirates catching prospect, got off to a really, really, really bad start, okay, at double-A. Uh, after the first couple of weeks of the season, it was not looking good at all. Well, 
there's a reason we play more than two weeks into the season because right now Henry Davis is one of the hottest players at double A. Uh, he's up to five home runs now, uh, walking more than he's striking out. If people were a little dis disillusioned by what happened with Henry Davis to start the season, go revisit the Henry Davis we're seeing today because uh, I think he's on the fast track. And I think there's a, there's the potential to see him at some point in time in the second half this year if he continues to improve uh, and show he belongs. So I'm very bullish on on Henry Davis, and he's he's a pirate. Okay, there'll be opportunities in Pittsburgh. That's one of the nice things things about looking at players in organizations like Pittsburgh is there will be opportunities, right? Yeah, the uh, the flip side of that is they have no incentive or they didn't used to have an incentive to promote their young players early because they were going no place anyway and they were trying to avoid starting service clocks. But Pittsburgh looks surprisingly adept this year. They've been the probably the surprise story among teams in Major League Baseball this year. The question I have for you, Tim, is there's a, another catcher in the Pittsburgh organization, Andy Rodriguez, who's ahead of him on the on the depth chart as far as, I think he's in AAA and Davis was in AA the last time I checked, is, is there a chance that Davis is blocked at catcher not by somebody who's on the major league roster, but by Andy Rodriguez, who's one notch ahead of him on the minor league roster? I would have a tendency to want to agree with you in principle, but right now, Andy Rodriguez has been diagnosed with a right forearm strain. We're still waiting for an update on his status and what's going to be happening. But for now, Andy Rodriguez is on the I.L. And we should point out also that uh, Rodriguez is not a particularly fantastic defensive catcher and has also right. played at first base and in the outfield in the minor leagues. And there's mm -hmm. some thought that maybe Rodriguez would end up being a kind of a super utility player for Pittsburgh, uh, which right. might be a better match for his, for his skill set. Uh, it's an interesting thing to watch if you're interested in getting a hold of those prospects at the right time. Uh, what are your sources for tracking all the minor league prospects that you're tracking? I have two things, a left eye and a right eye. I, I'm always looking at the stats. Most of the information that I'm coming up with is, is based on just looking at box scores, looking at stats, looking at lines. And as well, I refer to uh, Rich Wilson, who runs Prospect 361 and does all of the scouting of the minor league uh, prospects. He does great work. And uh, I definitely take his advice to heart, Patrick. I look for the minor league stats at MILB.com. Uh, I presume you do uh, uh -huh. at least sometimes as well. Do you have any yep. others? Basically, MILB.com provides everything by league. It provides all the details. You can even go into game logs. Being that I live 100 miles uh, north of nowhere, uh, YouTube comes into play. All right. Tim, this has been terrific. Remind us where listeners can keep up with your work. Yeah, you can find me at Prospect 361, where we do a weekly uh, two, actually we do two podcasts weekly, a Friday and a Sunday show, uh, myself with Rich Wilson, and my closer report and waiver wire, you can catch them every Sunday morning, just in time for your fab runs. Uh, I want to thank you very much for having me on again, Patrick. It's always, it's always a pleasure seeing you and talking up the game with you. My thanks. 
Tim McLeod writes for Prospect361.com and appears regularly on the Prospect 361 podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and my Extra Innings comment are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Daily Call-Ups report, Baseball HQ scouts analyze all the week's call-ups, including Joey Ortiz in Baltimore, Tanner Bybee in Cleveland, Luis Medina in Oakland, and Michael Bush in Los Angeles. And don't miss the Eyes Have It Prospect podcast with hosts Brent Hershey and Chris Blessing looking at the Major League debuts of Cleveland left-hander Logan Allen and Cleveland right-hander Tanner Bybee. Tanner Bybee getting lots of attention this week, and well, he should. I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and really they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, team injury reports and player injury analysis in the big hurt, gaming strategy analysis for roto, points leagues, NFBC and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Arizona right-handed starting pitcher Brandon Fott is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the Minor League Minute, we take a look at the Arizona Diamondbacks' Brandon Fott. After years of a slow but steady rebuild, the Diamondbacks are finally starting to look like a potential challenger to the Dodgers' decade-plus dominance of the NL West. The club has one of the deepest farm systems in baseball, even after graduating National League Rookie of the Year candidate Corbin Carroll. The club also has some intriguing arms in Dre Jamison and Ryan Nelson, but the top pitching prospect in the system is the 24-year-old Brandon Fott. Since being drafted in the fifth round in the 2020 draft out of Bellarmine, Fott has steadily made himself into one of the best pitching prospects in baseball, and last year punched out a minor league leading 219 batters in just 167 innings of work. Fott attacks hitters with a 93-95 mile an hour heater that tops out at 97 with excellent late movement and is backed up by a plus tight slider, an improved changeup, and a seldom used curveball. That four-pitch mix keeps hitters off balance and the slider results in plenty of swing and miss. Fott had a strong spring training, but the Snakes wanted to give him more reps in the minors and opted to start the season with Nelson and Jamison, but this week Jamison was sent down to AAA Reno, and it stands to reason that Fott will get the call, if not this week, then in the very near future. While pitching prospects are inherently risky propositions, Brandon Fott's ability to miss bats and pound the strike zone make him worth taking a flyer even in mixed league formats, and he's a must-own in NL-only leagues. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Scouting Team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. And here with a look at Cleveland right-handed starter Gavin Williams is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He has an all-right fastball. Boy, is that an understatement. Honestly, my fastball is all right up here. 23-year-old Cleveland Guardians right-hander Gavin Williams told the Akron Beacon Journal's Brad Bourneville on April 5th. Worth noting is all right fastball clocks in at 102 miles per hour. But it's more the off-speed pitches that you need to be dialed into, Williams continued. Everybody knows I have a good fastball, once again, 102 miles per hour. But if you can't throw the other pitches wherever you want to, then you're not going to have much success, according to Williams. And as MLB.com pointed out in the 2023 edition of its annual prospect rankings, Williams has struggled for years with spinning the ball effectively. That's why 23-year-old Cleveland Guardians hurler Gavin Williams, like all of our frequent flyers, should be concerned to be in. All right, long shot, who may be worth a flyer, all right, if he's still available in your league. Once again, Gavin Williams recently said his 102-mile-per-hour four-seam fastball, which has plus ride with solid run, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst, is all right. Likewise, perhaps Williams' two-plane slider with late vertical drop coupled with his 12-6 curveball and late fading changeup is highlighted on page 110 of Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst, are all right too, if not a little bit understated again. To put this in perspective, Williams has moved through four levels of the minors in only 29 games with a career 1.74 ERA beginning at High A Lake County in April 2022 and debuting for AAA Columbus on April 27, 2023, just over a year later. By the way, in only his 29th professional game, his AAA debut, Williams pitched five and a third scoreless with six strikeouts and three walks, lowering his 2023 ERA to .46. He's only allowed one earned run in nine hits this season, not one game this season, striking out 26 in four 2023 starts. Wow. Additionally, Williams walked three batters as AAA debut, matching his previous season total of three walks in three 2023 starts at AA, averaging only one walk per start compared to seven strikeouts per start on average. That accentuates Williams' 36% strikeout rate in 2023, mirroring his 29-game career strikeout rate of 34%, well above the league average of 22%, according to our research. In other words, it's probably all right to add 23-year-old Cleveland Guardian starter Gavin Williams as our understated frequent flyer for this week. All right? For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about the Mateo Miracle. A little while back, I had a Twitter discussion with a guy I know. He's an excellent fantasy baseball manager, and he was talking about what a great value Randy Arozarena had been in his NFBC draft. 
I happened to be looking at about that same time at my own Tout Wars roster, and I was checking the stats for my starting shortstop in that league, the Orioles' Jorge Mateo. And it turned out Mateo compared very favorably with a Rosarena. Batting average, a Rosarena 353, Mateo 358. On base percentage, 418 to 410. In slugging, a Rosarena was up there at 600, but Mateo was at 623. Home runs, a Rosarena had 5 to Mateo's 3. RBIs, a Rosarena's 24 outstripped Mateo's 15. Runs, a Rosarena had 18 to 15. And in stolen bases, a Rosarena had 3 and Mateo had 8. In fantasy value, a Rosarena was $38 by Baseball HQ's 5x5 performance measurement, and Mateo was $37, so it was pretty close. The difference, of course, was that a Rosarena was an ADP 38 in the NFBC main event, that's in the third round, while Mateo had been ADP 274, that's the 19th round. Now, I had rostered Mateo Stats in the Tout AL-only auction for $7 in a standard 260 draft. At the time, I thought it was a fantastic bargain. Mateo had been a $20 player the year before on the strength of 13 homers and a league-best 35 stolen bases. And with stolen bases on the rise in 2023 because of the bigger bags and the new pickoff rules, I thought Mateo might get 50 steals, maybe 60, and even if he didn't hit fewer home runs and had his value dragged down by the same terrible 267 on base percentage he had last year, he'd still be worth $7 easily. Well, of course, he's been worth far more. According to Baseball HQ's custom draft guide valuation engine, using on base percentage instead of batting average, because that's what we do in Tell Wars, He's put up a crisp $36 in 5x5 value, leading the American League, just ahead of his teammate Cedric Mullins. Of course, this inspired thoughts of what Mateo might continue to accomplish. He's played in 20 of Baltimore's first 25 games, and to date he has rung up 4 home runs, 15 RBIs, 18 runs scored, and 10 stolen bases. If you prorate those counting stats to the team's full 162 games, you get... 26 home runs, 97 RBIs, 117 runs scored, and 65 stolen bases. Not bad for a $7.19th rounder. And the OBP drag? Well, actually, so far, it's been an OBP enhancement. Mateo has a 406 on base percentage that has him in the neighborhood of Mike Trout, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Paul Goldschmidt in the OBP department. Now, if you've spent as many years as I have in the dungeons at BaseballHQ.com, chained to a desk with Ray and Brent yelling, but is it a fact or a fluke? Well, you start to wonder. So I checked Mateo's skills profile against last season's, and it looks like he's made a deliberate effort to take fullest advantage of his bat-to-ball skills and, vitally, his speed. He's showing a lot better plate discipline. His walk rate is up to 7% from 5% last year, and even more importantly, his strikeout rate is down all the way to 15% from 28. Without getting into details, he swings at far fewer pitches this season, especially outside the zone. He's also changed his batted ball profile, lowered his fly ball percentage down to 29% from 41, held his line drive rate around 21%, and bumped his ground balls to 50% from 38. 
His ground ball to fly ball rate has almost doubled, and his launch angle is down to around 4%, on average from 15% the last couple of years. At the same time, his pull percentage is up to 44% from 37, and he's lowered his soft and medium contact by 16 percentage points, while upping his hard contact by that same 16 points. All his batting metrics at Baseball Savant are in the red on the sliders. That's good. StatCast expected performance metrics like expected batting average, slugging, and WOBA are all in the 90th percentile or higher. That's a big change from last year. His K rate has gone to 85th percentile from 13th. I could go on, and you're probably worried I might. The point of all this is that it looks like a deliberate effort by Mateo to hit the ball hard, to deliberately pull it on the ground, and put pressure on the defenders to field the ball cleanly, because the slightest bobble or hesitation, and Jorge Mateo's going to be at first base. He's got a 99th percentile sprint speed. The guy can move, and he's taking advantage of it. In short, although it's probably too late for that, Jorge Mateo has made a deliberate and successful effort to reinvent his game, and it's paying off for both of us. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Tim McLeod from Prospect361.com and the Prospect 361 podcast. Tim is really knowledgeable about those prospects, about closers, and about Asian baseball. And he's a good hang. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Stitcher. Wherever you catch your pods, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection Systems. And the week after that, another top-notch guest expert, Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bus podcast. Plus, of course, all the usual great stuff, news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Derek Carty on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.